welcome to the complete episode 13. We just had uh, Friday the 13th, and now it's uh, episode 13. Uh, this is it. This is the end of, uh, of Kubrick's filmography, uh, the last movie, Eyes Wide Shut. Are you ready, Tra- Travis? What do you think? Yes, I have my mask on and my hood up, and I'm ready with the password. All right, that sounds pretty good. And we have a uh, we have a guest here uh, who arrived in a taxi. Um, he's all the way in the uh, on the we- on the west of the uh, continental United States. Uh, it's Trevor Barrett who is uh, here with us uh, to discuss Eyes Wide Shut. How you doing, Trevor? Hey, I am good. Thanks so much for letting me come into your this rarefied atmosphere, at least for a little while. <laughs> Even if it's well, just a dream, <laughs> no dream is ever just a dream, Travis. Let's <laughs> let's be clear. I hope I don't mix up your names because Trevor and Travis. It's going to be tough. There's a lot of tr. I wouldn't even know where to start if I was going in alphabetical order. <laughs> That's all right. It works with the duality of everything that we've yeah, discussed all exactly. this time. You, you really <laughs> might be talking to the same person. Which so. one of you is the prostitute, by the way? I'm not... <laughs> Aren't we all prostitutes, Aren't we all? man? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Trevor, so uh, with with that with with that infamous introduction, <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, uh, why don't you uh, tell tell the listeners at home a little bit about yourself? Oh, okay. So let's see. I've been uh, kind of in this community for for a while now. I have a website called The Mooks and the Gripes, where I review books from around the world and movies from around the world, but primarily Criterions over the last few years. And that's where I hang out. I love the, I love these groups. It's a great place to, to get together and share. There are just so many insightful people. And I've met, I met you two, you know, how long has it been now? It feels, feels fairly recent, but yeah. Yeah. Time flies. It really does. And it's, it's been great. Travis, I think before we got on there, I kind of said, you know, this is the first time you and I are talking to each other with our voices, but because I've listened to your show, because I've been around with you online, it just doesn't feel that way. And I always think it's so strange how, you know, some of your really good friends, people you feel like, you know, (laughs) are people you've never met. So, oh yeah, it's it's fun. uh, Same with me. I've been like, you know, 40 something episodes and counting of the eclipse viewer. And uh, I just, the same thing. Oh, I've never really talked to Trevor, <laughs> but it feels like I know him so well after listening yeah, to his analysis yeah. of films. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad, Travis, you brought up the Eclipse Viewer, because uh, if anybody has not uh, uh, listened to that show, it's it's a wonderful companion piece to a really special uh, series that Criterion put out, uh, and definitely... Uh, Look around on the uh, on the website to see if there's any uh, of the eclipse boxes that catch your fancy. There's something for everybody in the series, and then uh, and then go and listen to to David and Trevor's uh, analysis of the box. You will not be disappointed. Yeah, if you don't mind, I'll just throw out my favorite. If anyone's listening and and it's still, you know, the Barnes and Noble sale days or something. Pick up Travels with Hiroshi Shimizu. That one is uh, is my favorite of the whole series, and I think our conversations on on those were were just really really fun and and enlightening for me personally. I hope they are for others as well. But uh, there you go. 
Great. Yeah. I think everybody knows my favorite Eclipse box. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, and you, uh, you joined us for that, too. I so. did. Yeah, I got to talk Ozu, um, which I always love doing. Um, let's let's spend the first hour of this episode talking about Ozu. Who else loves <laughs> there we Ozu go. here? There we go. Uh, so the first thing we do here uh, with the guest uh, as, the, as part of the initiation process uh, is... Um, All right, I'm taking off my robe. You got you to pick <laughs> yeah. a mask. Yeah, <laughs> is uh, is to, to uh, say a few words about Kubrick, uh, you know, how you came to him and uh, generally what your opinion of him is and sort of how your relationship with his movies maybe has evolved uh, over the course of your film watching. All right. I've been trying to figure out how to say this because I don't I don't quite know. It's been so long since I, I I've been kind of in a relationship with Kubrick's films. Um, the first one I watched was probably Spartacus, and I probably watched it at school. I remember watching it in sixth grade, and I don't think I'd seen anything else by him at the time. And I know that's an outlier, but I still actually, I really liked it. I, I went home and uh, found out it was on TV at some time and ended up recording it, and I would watch it periodically. I just really enjoyed it. But it was a, a few years later. I actually still wasn't, you know, terribly old, but I ended up watching The Shining when I was, I don't know, 12 or 13 with a friend and terrified me in a way that I could never quite explain. And I just, uh, that became my favorite movie for, for years and years. And I would watch it all the time. I would watch it with friends. I, I was really stupid and I would um, watch it on dates. Um, yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking, but, but there was just something about it, you know, something about sharing, Hey, this is one of my favorite movies. There's a lot going on here. And I didn't necessarily get it at the time, but there was, there's so much that I appreciated about it that just kept me going. And um, I think it was in my early 20s when I really started to dig in and watched everything that I could get my hands on by Kubrick. And quickly, my favorites became 2001 and Barry Lyndon. And, you know, over the years, I've managed to watch everything else up until this week, even. So probably finished almost everything by Kubrick about 20 years ago and then watched Killer's Kiss and Fear and Desire maybe eight years ago or so when they kind of showed up on Blu-ray from Criterion and I think it was from Kino. And then I I, I stopped and I've been watching and re-watching the, the ones that I've already seen, but I had never seen Eyes Wide Shut ever. Oh. I, I Yeah, I hope this is okay with you guys. I still haven't seen it. Um, <laughs> get get no. out of here. <laughs> <laughs> no, and part of the reason for that was... I guess I bought into the original reviews that it just wasn't that good. And at least at the time that it came out, you know, I thought, oh, looks like he, he didn't even get to make it all the way. You know, he died before it was released. Um, it, it They say it's not particularly well done. It's kind of just a, a mess. And so I put it out of my mind for a long time. And it wasn't until fairly recently, again, recently being kind of a relative term, it could have been a decade ago, that I started coming across positive um, thoughts about it. Uh, never enough to convince me just to go out and, and finally watch it, but that did turn it into one of those movies where I'm like, yeah, I need to I need to sit down and watch it. I just never got around to it. Um, and then you two started this series, and I thought, I need to watch it by the end so that I can listen along 
and was, you know, uh, still hadn't watched it when, when you invited me to be a guest for this episode. And so I went out and watched it. I've been, I've rewatched it and I've read up on it and dang, this is a good movie. I'm excited, excited to get into it with you both because I've loved your show and I know that there's going to be a lot of things that I haven't thought about with the movie yet. It's very fresh in my mind and I'm very fresh to it. So, you know, with Kubrick's films, they've always been ones that I I develop a relationship over time where, you know, the first time through it's almost it's almost meaningless. It's more of a chance to start plotting a map and then really exploring and, and understanding the 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 nature of the landscape comes later on. Um so you know, I hope I can I hope I can participate today, guys. But I'm glad I can be here to listen live. If not, <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. I do have a lot to say. Um, a lot that I that I loved about it. This this was a very good experience uh, of going through the movie. Um, I hope you two like it too. Hope I'm not going to be the the sole defender. <laughs> someone kind of ignorant about it um, on here to to talk about it, but. Uh, yeah, so that that's me with Kubrick. It's been it's been a long good relationship. I think he's brilliant. He's definitely someone who would come up if I was talking about favorite or best directors of all time. He's not my number one in any of those, but he would come up in that conversation. Cool. Well, that that's uh, I think that's a great uh, sort of story, and especially uh, I'm excited to have you on because you are as divorced as you can be from the swirling hype or expectations or anything like that, 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 uh, was attached to this movie when it was released. Um, so I think that aspect of it will be, uh, interesting to talk about. Um, before we get into, to, uh, how much we hate this movie and anybody who likes it, <laughs> um, <laughs> Travis, why don't you, uh, why don't you set up, uh, the, um, what, what, what Kubrick was up to in between, uh, Full Metal Jacket and this. All right. So, uh, after Full Metal Jacket, um, you know, like we said, mixed responses, it went up against another Vietnam movie and a bunch of Vietnam movies at the time. So, um, it kind of got lost in the shuffle. There were people who loved it, people who hated it. It did okay financially, but not to Kubrick's expectations as usual. He had high expectations for the product he was putting out and uh, the public never gave him what he wanted in return, which was true all the way until the end of this movie as well. Um, He has kind of like gone in and out of thinking about making this movie over the years. Um, At one point he was thinking about it as kind of like a, he was going to stick a lot more faithful to the book. The book is, uh, set in like 19th century and it's in Vienna and it's uh, about a uh, Jewish doctor and his kind of journey and it's a it's more of a tale of anti-Semitism um, more strongly anti-Semitic as opposed to uh, you know the masculine uh thing the the masculinity in which bill has to kind of like uh justify his masculine masculine side uh it was more of a anti-semitic uh kind of like trying to prove his worth as a jew and so he had woody allen in mind as a as a star of this vehicle 
Um, this was back when Woody Allen was just doing like Sleeper and Bananas and his earlier films, his earlier funny ones. Um, and then again in the 70s, he was going to approach this film and it was going to be a comedy with Steve Martin. Um, he wanted to make a really dark, cynical comedy about this man's sexual odyssey that he was trying to go on. And he thought Steve Martin would be the perfect foil in that. And that fell through. And so now, after years later, he brought it to, um, there we go, Frederick Raphael. He brought the script to him, and he talked to Kubrick, and they decided to modernize it, get rid of some of the older tropes, focus more on this, uh, the themes that we're going to talk about in the rest of this podcast. And it was then that Kubrick decided to fully commit to it. Um, he cast... Nicole, he wanted to cast a married couple, a true actor's married couple. So Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman were chosen after kind of he circled around a few different people. But um, the idea of having these high profile people in his picture um, kind of appealed to him due to the, uh, you know, the rich and glitzy nature of the characters as they were written. He wanted some high profile people to represent them. Um, but he also had other high-profile people in the picture. Um, he originally had Harvey Keitel in the uh, Ziegler role. Um, Keitel couldn't make it in the last moment, so he recast him with Sidney Pollock. He had Jennifer Jason Lee in the uh, uh, Marlene role, which is the, uh, the daughter of the dead uh, patient of his. Um, but because she couldn't come back for uh, some reshoots, he just reshot all of her stuff and completely cut her out of the film. Um, this project was in the Guinness Book of World Records for longest filmed, continuously filmed project, uh, 400 shooting days, which was unheard of. He probably, he went well over budget and, um, the filming began in 1996. Um, the film was released in 1999. Um, he started the script writing process in 1994 and yeah, he he did a couple of cool, uh, you know, as usual with most Kubrick films, there's some sort of technical achievement that he also makes within the filming. Uh, he liked the natural lighting style of Barry Lyndon, and this movie is also lit with practicals in the interiors. So there may be theatrical lights coming in through the windows or stuff like that, but most of their faces are lit with practicals inside. And to be able to film at these low light levels he did a process called push processing um for the film stock in which you would leave it in the chemical bath um longer than you would normally do for normal processing which allowed you to get a deeper negative and pull more color and more saturation and more tones but also creating kind of a ethereal milkiness in the whites so that's why there's lots of blooming whites and lots of extra light within the film because of the process he used um which was a big thing usually uh, usually you would only use a push process in filming if you were running out of light and you needed to finish a scene and so okay well we're running out of light just we'll push it a stop or we'll push it an extra minute um and kubrick did it for the entire film creating a very specific look um this film has a different look from a lot of his films and i think that is one of the reasons um, because of this process. Um, 
the last kind of bit of information was that he took the final cut, showed it to Nicole and Tom and the heads of Warner Brothers, and died six days later. Um, there's some speculation that the film wasn't finished or some rumor about it, um, but from all accounts of his closest personal um, friends and family members and his assistant, Vidali, uh, they all said that, you know, with, this, with the exception of a few minor soundtrack mixes and a couple of uh, credit sequences, he was very happy with the final product of the film. That's basically it. Um, he brought Larry Smith as the DP for this movie, director of photography. Uh, Larry Smith was the gaffer for uh, Barry Lyndon and Full Metal Jacket. So he had someone he could trust doing the light lighting. As usual, Kubrick was very... Uh, very involved in the camera processes um and yeah i think that's uh that's basically the setup i mean it was a long process between the two things that he shot um he had lots of other projects that he was thinking about and then came right into eyes wide shut with a pretty clear idea of what he wanted to do and i think it's up to us to decide whether we think it was successful or not uh, do you know what what film this uh, this replaced uh, as the longest continuous shoot? Did you see that? Uh, it was Spartacus, wasn't it? No, it was Lawrence oh. of Arabia. Close, Lawrence yeah. Of Arabia. <laughs> so, but you get that. I mean, I think that gives you a sense of just how insane this is that this mm-hmm. became the longest continuous shoot because this is a much more intimate. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, um, you know. Uh, modest shoot than uh than something like lawrence of arabia which you can understand why that would have taken a long time for them to uh to produce um but uh but yeah so what did what did you think of uh eyes wide shut uh and how many times have you seen this one was the last time you saw it um i saw it let's see i'm trying to remember i think the last time i saw it was when i bought the white snap case box set from a while back, I did kind of a run through of everything, watched each movie. Um, Was this, this in that? Yes, it is, but it's uh, it's the American um, digitally inserted uh, party goers to cover up the unerotic sex, which we'll get into right. later. Um, it was that version. So that kind of. I remember that was the one I saw in theaters. I had heard about the European cut, and that was the one that came in the box set. And it was, you know, it was fine. I, I think I watched it once when I was in my 20s. I watched it again when I was in my late 20s. And then I haven't visited now until now I'm 42. So I've been in, I've been married for 15 years to this point. So this movie resonated a lot more strongly with me than it did when I was 20. Um, I think, as usual with Kubrick, um, you can revisit his movies over and over again at different points in your life and draw different conclusions or pick up on different uh, themes or topics that he uh, was trying to convey to you. And just like with uh, all of his other movies, I saw them when I was young and pulled different information out. And so this viewing, I was really looking forward to kind of uh, revisiting it again because I always remembered liking it. And I think what I liked about it always was the tone. Um, He sets out a really specific an interesting tone. Um, there's this laissez-faire kind of feeling of wealth and opulence. And then 
we develop this driving tone of some sort of, uh, I would say when I was younger, I would call it mystery. Like, like there is that mysterious thing that he's in pursuit of. Um, and I don't think I really drew to the conclusion of all the sexual aspects besides the very obvious and blatant sexual aspects, but not, uh, the psychological underpinnings of Bill's sexual journey or odyssey in this film. Um, I focused, you know, I focused more on the mystery aspect. Who's the girl who's protecting him? Like all that stuff that, that tone. Um, cause when you get to a certain part in this film, uh, the creepy factor rises high um, to like shining levels of like, this is, there's a lot of tension and mystery going on. And I really responded well to that. I really liked that portion. Um, And this viewing, I, this movie has jumped very, very high on my list. Um, I really responded well this time around. Um, But I would like to hear what Trevor has to say before we go any deeper, because I think um, you've heard me talk enough right now. <laughs> <laughs> I disagree with that, but uh, um, just general reactions. I'm I'm very glad that I saw it now. Uh, kind of like Travis, I've now been married for uh 13 years, you know, somewhere around there. And it's uncomfortable at times in the, in the film to recognize some of the conversations, um, some of the tensions and to think, Oh, I don't, I hope this isn't the basis for some of my own, you know, conversations with my wife and, and things like that, or, or the casualness at the very beginning when they're getting ready for the party. Um, you know, that, that kind of stuff was was uncomfortable, but it's also very interesting. Uh, again, because it feels like Kubrick was w- way ahead of his time, and yeah, he's he's basing this on an old novel that was written about the end of century in Vienna, but he he sets it at an end of century New York, and you know the the one percent and ninety nine percent conversations hadn't really taken hold for you know they wouldn't for about another decade. Um, after the recession, and also the Me Too movement, and and a lot of of ideas about masculinity, um, toxic masculinity, and and taking advantage and and exploiting women left and right, and all of those are in this. This is a very intimate picture of a married couple. Um, it's a very uh, intricate picture about that toxic masculinity and layered levels of wealth and how that can can just lead folks to basically exploiting one another um, up and down the the food chain and it just felt very timely to me it, it, it came at a good time in my life to to where I think that it, I, I wouldn't have been nearly as as um, open to the film. Uh, back when it came out, I, ju- I just really wouldn't have. I, I probably would have been like one of the critics and thought, "Oh, well, geez, that that was awful." You know, that didn't really say what I expected it to say. Um, whereas I think I was much more open to it and and maybe a little bit more educated to to see some of these things, which I I I just 
believe, like I have with most of Kubrick's films, he knew what he was doing and did this stuff deliberately. He didn't just luck out and have this stuff in there that just felt right. I, I know there's an aspect of that to his work of just getting it right by, based on feeling, but he's so thoughtful and so intelligent about film language that it's it's amazing that he can be this intricate, but he, he, he dedicates his life to these things. And the intelligence is just all there. It's it just takes us a while to catch up. A lot of times, as a society, as a you know, as as um, as film viewers, and I know that I would have taken quite a while to catch up to this one too. Trevor, I'm really gr- glad that you brought up um, how relevant this movie is today because uh, you know I thought we had covered the uh, Donald Trump movie in Doctor Strangelove, but this movie, ha- were it released today, would uh, absolutely 100% be seen as a subtweet. <laughs> um, yes, this, yes. This is this movie is almost um, eerily about Donald Trump <laughs> to the point where uh, it's it's uh, really remarkable. Just um, you know, both in terms of um, the the both both ways you can kind of look at this movie um, <clears throat> as an intimate movie about male and female relationships and their, their interactions. Um, and also as a, uh, sort of higher, um, social portrait of people in power and the way that they use people, use women in particular, um, and, uh, you know, just wealthy modern New York, um, just the, the, and the separation between what we, know of as New York as quote unquote regular people and what people of um, disgusting wealth, the kind of wealth where you would have a desk in your bathroom. <laughs> uh, so we're, we're talking about a whole other level of wealth here. And I think that, that both of those things are just so relevant um, to, to today that it, that it, it seems bizarre that this movie was made almost 20 years ago. Um, and, uh, and, and that's the case because the, what he's getting at are, are really deep truths here. And when he suggested to, uh, Frederick Raphael, who wrote, co-wrote the script with him, that they set this in modern times, he said, uh, Raphael said, you know, that this book was written almost a hundred years ago, people have changed since then. And all Kubrick said to him was, you think so? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It really made him reevaluate that thought. And yeah. He came, he came back and was like, you know what? I think you're right. I think we can make this work. And yeah. And, and so, you know, I think, uh, watching the movie this time, I, I, you know, initially I, I'll just, say kind of my my personal opinions before we can get into kind of what the this movie is 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 about potentially and how how he's doing it but um i was i was a bit uh trepidatious about going into this i thought um you know i haven't seen this movie in 15 years probably i saw it um in theaters opening night actually um at the at the at the man's chinese uh sold out show in uh in hollywood um and I adored it. Um, but I was there with, uh, 
six other people. We had family friends visiting from out of town and <laughs> I made them all go to the, uh, <laughs> to the movie, which was super awkward. <laughs> um, they all hated the movie, every single one of them. Uh, and I, uh, I loved it. Um, so it was a, it was a lot of me sitting around silent, contemplating what I had just seen afterwards while everybody yelled at everybody else about how bad it was. Um, but, uh, you know, then I watched it again a couple of years later, um, on, on DVD. And by the way, Travis, there were two, I looked it up. There were two snapper case editions. So there was ah. one that was released in 99, um, or 98 or 99. So before this movie was released, um, and then they added it and redid it with the, uh, with that movie with eyes wide shut and with life and pictures, uh, the documentary. Nice. Um, so, <clears throat> So I, I uh, watched it again and, and, li- and liked it a lot, um, but it's been a long time since then, and there's been uh, there there's still definitely uh, a, a large portion of people, even people who really love Kubrick, who are are uh, very um, negative on this film. And so I was curious to see going in how I would feel about it, if this would be another kind of clockwork or or Full Metal Jacket situation where I felt more ambivalent towards a film. Um, I love this movie. <laughs> so, but in a very different way than when I watch Barry Lyndon or 2001, I'm sort of, um, I, I just, uh, get taken in by the film and let it kind of carry me away. And I'm just completely enraptured the whole time. This movie, there's something going on in this movie and I can't figure out what it is, you know? And, yeah. and I love it. Like it's, it's, it's a very slippery film. And there, there are certain scenes in here that just, I'm not sure what's happening (laughs) and I can't quite get it. And in that way, it reminds me a lot of The Shining. Um, And I've, I've heard people refer to this as almost like a Shining redo. Um, And I, I totally get that. It feels like there's, there's something not quite right and you can't put your finger on it all the time. Yeah, I I agree. There's a there's something sub sub uh, within the structure of the film, within the the dialogues and the conversations. I don't know if it's body posturing or rhythm of editing. Like there's something going on that it, it, in like uh, entrances you. Like it really, if you if you give yourself over to the film, it can, it really lulls you in. I. Uh, I watched it twice in preparation for this. I watched it once, and it was I kind of had to piece me a little over two nights because of just my schedule. And then last night I watched it all again. And most of the times when I do the second or third for this episodes, I kind of have my finger on the fast forward button to get to other points that I want to kind of like really focus on. And I found myself with my finger hovering and never touching. <laughs> so it really does just carry you through and, 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 and move you through this world. And I think I think it's, you know, we're now at his 13th film. He has a mastery of the visual language. Um, and he's, he's using all of his techniques that he's developed he's using all of his style points um everything that he's developed over the years is in full swing it has a two-act structure again it has you know it has up to this point and then 
a, a revisit. It has that mirroring feeling of this yep. is what happens here, and then we repeat it again. And it has all these same kind of uh, structures and camera and everything that just completely and totally uh, lulls you into the film and allows you to put your, you know, a trust has been developed at this point and we trust uh, Kubrick to take us on this journey. And I find it to be absolutely fascinating and allows you to know once you get lulled in and you don't fight any of the conventions, conventional wisdom or conventional thinking about how the story should be or what parts are missing. Or if you, if that just you allowed to give yourself into that, you can start tapping into deeper meanings, deeper thoughts, deeper, uh, symbolisms and structures within the film that are relevant today as it probably was even in 1999 you know there's these truths like that's you know what I think in the summation episode that's going to be my number one uh, talking point is universal truths that he is always has his finger on the pulse of that he's always trying to show the world and help them to kind of get on a more enlightened path of thinking which is uh which is truly fascinating yeah i think that you know uh the universal truth aspect is so key because i think that's what makes a film about two you know a couple married couple feel as kind of ambitious as a movie about uh space and the you know that goes from the dawn of man to the future um because there there's there is so much here uh, that, that you can look at. And I think f- the fact that the movie is not perfect is really key to understanding how to, uh, the, the way into it. Um, and I think that's true of his last three movies, which I, I really feel strongly that after Barry Lyndon, it's almost as if after Barry Lyndon, he said, I made the perfect movie and people didn't really like it that much. So I might as well make not perfect movies. Maybe they'll like those more. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like these last three movies, you know, people complain about the sets in Full Metal Jacket. And I I complained a little bit about the sets or poked fun at them. And, and you know, none of the sets in his last three movies look real. There's there's something a little off about them. And it's funny to me, like, that, you know, people recounted the story of how he measured the distance between uh, newspaper stands or pay phones uh, on, on New York City streets in order to get the sets just right. And I almost feel like it's, a, it's sort of like the Valley of the Uncanny, where it's like, the closer you get, the more, the more accurate he tries to make these sets, the more unreal they seem. And so he got, he, he, he tried so, so hard to recreate these New York City streets that they just look off and you can't quite put your finger on why they look nothing like New York City. I mean, there's a few things where it's like, what, why is there only, you know, why are there no parked cars on this street or what, you know, the, the, the sidewalks seem a little shallow sometimes or whatever it is. But I think ultimately it's just this feeling that there's something not quite right. And I feel like that's, you know, that that's really what makes this movie so engaging for two and a half hours, that there's always this feeling that like everything's beautiful and it's Christmas and we should be happy. And we're going to these marvelous parties and 
you know, we have, we have more money than, you know, we know what to do with, even though he's just this, you know, he's just a doc, a, a general care practitioner. And he's, he's spending a thousand dollars in one night without caring at all that, that, you know, he doesn't, he, he keeps talking people up. He's like, actually, I'm going to give you more money than that. Um, and oh, yeah, you know, Bill's magic wallet. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, <laughs> it, and so it, it should be this like fantasy land, you know, we're, we're taking our kid to go get, uh, to go get toys for Christmas. Um, but there's always just something that's not quite right about it. And that, that, that's so intriguing to me. It feels like he does that in order to more clearly show us the masks we have ourselves, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the facade we have in our own lives, the veils that we put over, uh, the way that we view things in order to live, you know, in order to make it through another day in difficult circumstances or in difficult relationships, in order to look more positive than we might be, uh, you know, and, and I, man, I'm feeling like I'm really becoming a downer here. Um, no, I think I'm a positive I, person, um, <laughs> but, but, you know, it's not, it, an, it's not an uplifting movie either. No, so. <laughs> it, it, it's the way that he deals with everything. I, I think that, um, you know, we will get into it, but the initial reviews that were way uh, harsh on the film because it wasn't erotic enough. It wasn't a sexy thriller that, you know, Entertainment Weekly had proclaimed it was going to be. And the reason for that is you cannot watch any of this. You can't watch his conversations with his wife. You can't watch the the any of the, uh, you know, even the first time when, when he's when they come home from the party and he starts to kiss her and she looks in the mirror and this face just shows there's something else going on. You know, on the surface, this looks ideal. This looks like the way it's supposed to be. Um, Bill's life looks like he's made it, but digging under it, the surface is not real. There's so much turbulence and um, dishonesty and self-delusion going on that I don't think it would work as well if it felt real, you know, and it it, it feels dreamlike for, I think, a couple of reasons. But I think one of them is because it's supposed to to be very suggestive that all of this, you know, is a facade that is covering up just some really awful, awful things that are going on. It's like in in the the shining, you know, there there's kind of that same feel. It feels artificial. The beginning, his com- Jack's conversations at the beginning just are off enough that you're like, man, this isn't actually the way that they feel. This is maybe the way he wants to feel. This is maybe the things he he's supposed to say and he knows it and he wants it to be the right thing, but it isn't actually the right thing. It's not actually how it all is going down. And that layer there just really works to emphasize that. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. It's like, I <clears throat> thinking about it and, and I going off what Matt said about, he hit his Barry Lyndon and then said he changed in terms of kind of like how he presented reality. Cause he was very concerned with making things as real as possible in his other films, like making them feel like they're actual environments that you can be held in. And then after Barry Lyndon, all of his environments feel like dreams. Like they feel like that, like Matt's saying with the uncanny Valley. And I thought a lot, I thought a lot about this and it almost feels like the city that bill is walking through is 
you remember that movie Dark City where they come out yeah. at night and structure this place to make it represent or yeah. change it and and help people like that's what it feels like. It feels like this world is being built just around the corner from every street that he's on and as he turns the corner it is built for his needs for that moment. And as he wanders this the the world behind him disappears. Like it 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 has that that quality and that's that's the same as The Shining. It feels like this is a hotel that was constructed as an experiment to watch to see what this man does. And this nightmare uh, landscape of Full Metal Jacket of, hey, we saw this and we saw these on your, you know, it feels like an alien is coming down and making these uh, biospheres for these people to exist within to kind of just watch the way that they behave. (laughs) And it's basically that's what Kubrick's doing at this point. He's. He is godlike in his constructs to then put his characters in, winding them up and watching to see what happens. And I felt a lot of that in this movie. It's a very specific world that doesn't feel real because it's not real. It's it's a you know, (laughs) I I keep thinking back to his very first film and that line which rang so ridiculous, but a psychological landscape. He, you know, he has that line when he's talking about this war, this unnamed war and this uh, taking place in a psychological landscape. And that's what he's ended up building in his last three films are these psychological landscapes for people to exist within and just his characters to exist within because Rarely do the other characters in the film, the secondaries, feel like they exist beyond the main character's needs or desires or, you know, that that uh, support that they need. So it's it's uh, it's very interesting. And this in this film does have that just come from the get go. I mean, the opening shot of the film is Nicole Kidman uh, getting undressed. So it's almost like he delivers right off the bat. It's it's like when it's like when uh, Hitchcock put himself in the first reel of his cameo. All right, let's get this out of the way because this is what you guys came to see, and now watch, pay attention to my story. So it's like here, here's Nicole Kidman naked. There, done. Now let's go into what I really want to discuss, and it has that that uh, confrontation with the audience, bringing them into this world. And then allowing you to participate in the film at this heightened level. And it's not a heightened level like a, a theatrical experience or a uh, an overwrought thing. Everything has the, the tinge of truth, but it's layered so many layers deep behind, like Trevor was saying, these masks that we put on ourselves and... By viewing their masks, we are watching our masks and seeing like how many layers we have between our truth and what we put out into the world. And this movie is filled with those uh, symbols um, from the masks that are in the uh, the uh, Fidelio party, um, the masks that we find in everyone's apartments. Um, like the mirrors, this is he can. You know, it, there's a large concern with masks and image, and that's what the 
uh, a, the big running theme in this film is uh, how we view ourselves, how we are viewed by others, and what we think of others. Um, and it's and that's just one of the probably like there's like six themes going like there's so yeah. many things to talk about in this movie that <laughs> you could pick as a central yeah. theme of yeah. any essay. It is crazy. Well, like well, you just brought amazing. up two two big things I think uh, that I want to talk about because I I love um, your comparison to the fear and desire opening because I, I think also another aspect of that narration you can bring up is it could be any war these could be any soldiers these could this could be any couple it doesn't matter that it's these two particular people um and in a way using this this famous couple in in the film allows you to do that because you're no longer watching you i don't think anybody is ever watching bill and alice harford in this movie you're always watching Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Yes. And that aspect of it make, makes it just never feel like they're an actual, they're, like they're having an actual conversation because they're always ha- performing uh, for each other. Um, and and then well, the other thing, go uh, ahead. Do you mind if I really quickly, no, just a, a response on that. And at the same time, it feels really intimate like you're getting beyond the performance that they put on outside i mean even that opening shot of nicole kidman it's not i mean she she has a great figure but it's not particularly sexy it's not like kubrick sets her up and has her undressing in some kind of seductive way she basically kicks off if i'm remembering correctly um her clothes the way that you would when no one's watching or when the only person is that's watching is the person who's a fixture in your life now. Yes. You know, you're looking at Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman and you're getting away from the red carpet to them preparing for the red carpet and not really, you know, going through some of the the things that we all go through. How do I look? Have you seen my wallet? You know? Yeah, it's you know? as bland, it's as bland <laughs> yeah. and, and it's as blandly intimate as her peeing in front of him in the in the subsequent shot. Like mm-hmm. There's just, he, she's getting undressed. Like we all get undressed at the end of the day. Yeah. But I, I also think that in that shot, which was the second thing I wanted to talk about, is is just that if it's paired with eyes wide shut with the title that you're seeing, you know, you're seeing Nicole Kidman's bare backside, uh, but you're not actually seeing what is happening in in that moment. You know, you don't. Yeah under you see the this you see this beauty or uh erotic moment uh being filmed uh you know or perception of eroticism anyway but you're not actually uh getting to any sort of deeper truth about what's uh what you're seeing or who this person is or any of that and and that's followed up consistently with her character at the in the beginning stretch because every single person who meets her comments on her appearance you know ha- how you know you look good mm-hmm. um, you look beautiful mrs harford uh then she gets to the party and sydney pollock is saying that she looks beautiful then this guy is hitting on her uh you know it's 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 she's entirely uh in service of uh you know men finding her attractive that's that's basically what her role is uh in in the the entire opening stretch of the film until she asserts herself um in the in in the fight that's a good point like just having her have back to camera closed off 
um, says that there's stuff right. deeper or hidden from the audience. And yeah, no, I agree completely. And yes, it's a good point you bring up about the fact that uh, the only function she serves is a thing of beauty. And it's crazy. And it's funny because she is, you know, she is presented as beautiful. She's expected to be beautiful to the point where Tom Cruise doesn't even pay attention to her. Um, you know, Bill does not make eye contact with his wife until their stoned fight. Like if you go back and watch, like, you know, from they're getting ready for the party, he's, He's looking at himself. He's looking for his stuff. He's looking for his magic wallet. He's looking at his daughter. He is looking out the window of the cab. He's looking at everyone else at the party. He's when they're dancing, which is should be the most intimate portion. They're looking at everyone else around them. And he pay, he yeah, notices that's when he spots Nick Nightingale. Yeah, he yeah. spots Nick Nightingale instead of like his wife, which he should be paying attention to, especially because the line is brought up. Like, do you know anyone here? I don't know a single person. And so that should be in that crowd of strangers. There should be a bond that connects the two of you because you're the only two people who know each other. But in that moment, they're more, they're as far apart as they possibly could be. And you see them break off and Nicole Kidman. That's when you kind of see, she drops her facade for a second when she takes, when she just basically downs a glass of champagne like she's like okay I'm done with this and she just sucks down some drinks and gets a little tipsy and that's when that uh suave gentleman makes his move on her and is very uh, very attentive and she makes eye con- she locks eyes with him and doesn't break it until they you know leave that dance together and she asserts herself to him that no I'm I'm in control of this which is which is great because at all up in this time, she's being dragged along to this stuff. She's being told she's being getting lip service. She's been told she's pretty and beautiful, and uh, her husband's not paying any attention to her. And then this man does, and then she just straight up breaks it off and says, "No, we're not doing this." I said no, and walks away, which is which is a wonderful character development for Nicole Kidman's character because up until this point. She could just be another vacuous, beautiful, beautiful, geez, beautiful object um, <laughs> that has peppered through all of Kubrick's films. Um, whenever there is a, a female uh, person in his films, they're usually just an object of beauty to be uh, marveled at, looked at, or chased at, or, or wanted. And in this moment, he gives her that opportunity to be her own person and have a decision and make a decision and kind of break it off, which I yeah. find to be really wonderful for that character. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get into the, the, obviously the, the female representation in this movie, but I, I did mm. want to point out, I mean, I think that scene is actually really, really interesting. And, and her performance in that moment is great. You know, she, uh, and, and feels very relevant to today as well, because, she doesn't just say no and walk away. She has to say no three or four times to him. Mm-hmm. And the way that she does it, the first time, it's very flirtatious. She's trying to to charm her way out of the situation. You know, she puts her finger on his lips and on her lips. Um, you know, she's, she's basically um, using her uh, <clears throat> stereotypical feminine charms 
to try to get out of a situation that she's uncomfortable in. And he refuses to accept that. Um, in, in fact, I think it, it makes him more excited to uh, try to get her to go to the sculpture garden. Um, and he, again, he tries and she's, she turns him away. And then when he pulls her back, she there's a switch that flips in her eyes and you can see it. And she is no longer trying to um, politely excuse herself from the situation. She's now uh, annoyed with him and disturbed by how strongly he's hitting on her. And that's when she really shuts it down and gets out of the situation. Um, and uh, there's a lot of subtlety in her performance in that way in the film that I think is easy to miss because she's so woozy the whole time, you know, mm. she's, she's drunk or she's high Stone. or she's tired or she's, you know, um, yeah. Half asleep. Yeah. From or a dream, or right. emotionally distraught at the end of the film, you know? So it's like, I, I think the, the comparison between her and the, um, and, and Mandy who's, who's passed out upstairs uh, is very clear. Just the, the relationship between this, basically drugging in order to withstand the um uh, the consistent abuse and uh unwanted attention that is uh that is forced onto these women uh in the the very in different in situations that are perceived as very different but in reality they're both there to serve the men in their lives yeah and i think uh and what uh, what also that scene serves to do besides build uh, Nicole Kidman because the thing uh, when you said the 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 flip that she, the switch that she flips and her you can see it in her eyes and her posturing in her face uh, when she says get serious about it it's the same look yeah. and same switch that as Trevor said when she's looking in the mirror during the uh, her and Tom Cruise's the beginning of their sex scene. Um, it's the same. It's almost the same exact look, the same exact switch um, that she gives herself in the mirror. Um, it's that same expression, which I found to be, you know, really interesting. That you know, she's. You can tell at that moment that she's also putting on a show for her husband, which is is very interesting because if we go back to the scene of uh, her dancing with the suave Hungarian fellow. And Tom Cruise, uh, or Bill, I should, I, I mean, is like you said, it's hard to separate who they are from their characters because they're basically those characters. Um, but when uh, Bill is with the two models and he's uh, flirting and talking with them, or I should say they're flirting and talking with him because uh, this really sets up how Bill Hafford has no game. And that is an interesting that is an interesting weakness or perceived weakness to kind of introduce Tom Cruise's character with because up until this point, he seems like the dominant uh, male. He's not paying attention to his wife. They're rich. He's, he's looking for his wallet. We get to see their home and how opulent and wealthy they are. Then we get to this party and then we see what real wealth looks like and we see real opulence and we then see that he is not moving in the same social circles as these rich white older men because they obviously have their power on full swagger 
and they are able to wield it completely and fully while Tom Cruise's character is fumbling around with it, not able to understand how to use it, even when faced with such an easy and obvious seduction that is going on. He's unable to kind of, for lack of a better term, or to use horrible, like, close the deal do you, do you think? Do you think if if he hadn't been interrupted to go upstairs, that he he would have wanted to oh, go I off with those women? I think he would have fumbled and 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 messed it up somehow. I think I don't think. But he you ever think he would have wanted to? I think he would. So, I think the game I, is the same. You know, yeah. Ziegler's game is 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 Bill's game to an extent, but they're just in different spheres. Bill's in a sphere where. He does have to at least pay lip service and and probably you know psychological lip service as well to fidelity and to his marriage. Yeah. Um, but the game is the same, and I think that's why Nicole Kidman really starts to resent after this party. It's probably happened many times before, but I think she recognizes that you have me in con- under control here, and you don't you don't even think I have enough will to go and be unfaithful to you. Um, to to be an object that acts as well as one that's desired, and I think she recognizes the connection between him and these other men, but it's almost more pathetic because he a lot of his position is based on um, weakness. Now it's weird to say fidelity is weakness, or you know I, I don't mean it that way necessarily, but relative to the the masculine tropes that he's supposed to perform to. You know, I think she even recognizes here that her husband just isn't among these giants uh, of uh, of men in going out and getting what he wants when he wants it, and that she therefore is his object that that you know he can call upon her when he wants. Yeah, weakness weakness as a uh, construct within the society that they're yeah. working in. What do you what do you guys make of the? Uh, you know how clearly every everybody who he all, virtually everybody who he interacts with throughout the movie is relating to him in some sort of sexual fashion you know whether it's the obviously the prostitute and the the owner of the costume store are, are clear but then there's also the um homophobic uh yale students of course it had to be yale mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> on the, uh, yelling at him on the street or the gay desk clerk uh played by alan cumming like what do you guys make of that aspect of this movie Tre- i think it uh oh good trevor you want to you want to take this one? Oh well so sure i mean i wonder if i was just blind when i lived in new york i lived there for about six years and that certainly wasn't my experience, but uh, <laughs> which I'm grateful for. Um, I I didn't take that as anything terrible, other than this is what the movie is exploring. It, it is these kind of the the subtle sexual ways that people do interact, the expectations, the 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 kind of vibes, I guess, that uh, people are, are sending out in in all different directions, and. So it didn't. It, I I don't know if you were asking if it bothered me or made me think that the film was limited or unrealistic. I I do think it's un- no no. I mean I guess uh, obviously it's intentional. Um, you know, and so I I was I was curious what you guys thought just in terms of what 
Kubrick was saying, or for example, with the gay desk clerk, if it was just a situation where it's like this movie is about sexual relationships and gender relationships, and we might as well make this scene interesting in some way. <laughs> well, does did you get the sense that Bill recognizes all of the hit on moments, even with Alan Cummings, for example? Did, did it? Did he? That's a good question. Did he get it? Because I, yeah, I, well, I've seen a lot of people um, make the connection between the homophobic interaction and then him immediately going to or or being open to going with the prostitute when she tries to pick him up, which I don't really see as connected necessarily um, in term in his mind, um, you know, perhaps thematically, but it does seem to me like in most of these situations he's pretty clueless to what's going on or at least he's like even with the models at the beginning there he i could definitely see that being read as him perceiving what they're doing as harmless flirting and he's enjoying their attention as opposed to they actually want to have sex with him Oh, see, I read it as they want to have sex with him because they're confusing. But in my in my view, they're confusing him for a powerful person at this party. So his he doesn't I, I don't think he he's never been treated fully this way. Um, I looked at I looked at Bill a lot in terms of his profession and his uh, naivete like he's he is kind of like a a person that you know maybe got married young because they seem to be young and they're a young couple and their daughter is you know probably around 10 she looks like eight or ten so there's this feeling that maybe that uh, the two of them got together in college and that was kind of like the limit of his sexual experience is his wife and so that he has this sense of not really knowing how to play the game fully but having been around these parties he's witnessed how these types of people act and is kind of trying to mimic that way of being which is why I think there's a lot of parroting he does where he just repeats lines back because he doesn't know what to say or how to go about this so and then there's the fact that I truly do think that from his doctor's perspective he has put up this wall between himself and all these you know as his wife accuses him all these beautiful women that he has to touch the breasts of um that he also kind of has a hard time slipping out of that role that he has already established himself as because it's very clear throughout the movie that he takes being a doctor very seriously, and it is his identity because he has that in the pouch that usually a driver's license. Yeah, I would love be that in. he's always showing his medical card. Yeah, like yeah, I don't know if I've ever don't seen worry, that I'm before. a doctor. Yeah, doctor <laughs> detective. Like, hey, here's my badge. Let me prove it to you. And so I find that to be very interesting character trait that he has that like professionalism, which because and it's also strange because. The two girls are very clear, clearly they're sending out all the signs that they want this to happen. It's not a he's trying to like with Nicole Kidman and her uh, dancing partner. It's not 
him, you know, him playing the game, them rebuffing or leading him on, and then kind of like figuring out where they stand. They're very clearly like, let's go do this. And then to add to our uncanny feeling about this situation, when Bill is removed and says to be continued and leaves, they share a look that is very odd. Like their game was ruined. Like their their plans, their machinations were uh, totally. foiled. Yeah, which is or, which is super interesting. Which adds to that air of mystery of like what's really going on here, kind of thing. Which I I really really liked. Or Trevor, you were gonna say? I was just gonna say that look also could be one of well, he's an idiot. He's just you know like I want to yeah. say disappointment, but that's uh, not strong enough of a word. Uh, I I think that they're a little bit shocked and also think now oh i think they start to see him you know for who he is and recognize that he isn't the man that they are looking for yeah because he is called away by a richer more powerful man so he maybe it's he's uh, like a servant now yeah he's he's one of the servants in this in this play see i guess i kind of looked at it as a bit of a um male privilege like that his perspective on all of these people is you know, he's this doctor, like he's Dr. Bill. So he's got, and like, even in the, even the prostitute starts calling him, Domino starts calling him Dr. Bill before he's ever said that he's a doctor. Uh, you know, obviously like maybe we missed that moment or something, but it's always, um, like that's just his persona. And so there's all these women who are, you know, uh, think of him as a superhero and so he gets to you know he he saves the 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 model who has uh, something in her all of fifth avenue in her eye um <laughs> and uh <laughs> and so you know they look at him as this uh you know uh figure of adulation and so he's kind of going at it from that like that's basically his world that he gets to he he doesn't indulge because he's married he has a ring so he wouldn't want to hurt her uh, and they have a child together but he still gets to enjoy the uh the glow of uh the you know sexual attention from these people and so once his world is shattered it's almost like that's why he's not responding to the the uh even really the prostitute he's very just like matter of fact with her because he's now no longer able to see himself as being kind of at the top of this pyramid and that now there's actually a situation where um the the people that he sees as um sexual objects are actually equals and he doesn't know what to do about it Ah, yeah. See, I looked at I looked at it as uh, it wasn't until his wife pointed out these things to him that he never thought about it, and now it's like when you say, "Have you noticed all the red cars on the highway?" You don't notice them until someone points it out. And I think when Nicole and her, you know, after the party they have sex, then we kind of do a, "This is their average day," and then at the end of their average day. Uh, she they get high and they have this conversation in which she you know they have a back and forth about male and female kind of like roles and expectations and and so it isn't until she points out that you don't think these women like that you're touching at the doctor's office 
want to have sex with you? You don't think that this is something they want? And he's like, no, why would they want to do that? And she's just like, she just laughs at him. Like, you're just so stupid. Like, how, how can you not think that women have, don't have in millions of years of evolution, don't have sexual agency? And so it isn't until she points out that there are other people that have wants and desires besides him in his world or whatever his bubble that that's when all of a sudden he real like we realize as the audience and maybe bill as well that everything or everyone is some sort of sexual desire you know because as soon as he steps out of the house this woman who uh he goes to visit his uh his patient who's just died he goes to sit with them um and Marion, who's the daughter of his patient, who he's barely had contact with except for vis- on visits or doctor's visits. <laughs> I don't think we've says, ever I, had a conversation that wasn't yeah, about your father. We've never had a conversation. <laughs> and you love me? And so it's that all of a sudden now everything is becoming obvious now that it's been pointed out to him. Like this situation is something in which sex should not be in his world. They should not equate. But to this woman, now that death has come and visited their home, she has, you know, this is her opportunity to live and finally admit to him that she loves him or this idea of him, which is very amusing when you finally see her fiance, who is almost a clone of Dr. Bill. He has the same look, the same haircut. He's just wearing glasses. Well, that's why I don't think she really loves him. Like, I think Tom Cruise is probably pretty close to right in that situation that like she doesn't actually love him that she's getting these emotions mixed up together oh Oh, yeah no i agree but i think that all of a sudden now he's realizing it like oh my god my wife is right like i I don't think we're that far off in in agreement here because i think yeah i think yeah i was gonna say it sounds like that yeah i mean i think ultimately they're they're pretty similar in terms of like this rocked his world not in the sense of his wife wanting to leave him or sleep with somebody else. But really ultimately that, that she is a person that she's not just there Mm -hmm. to serve him. And I I think that aspect of it is great. The other thing I wanted to say about uh, that scene is that Tom Cruise is so funny in that scene. And like, especially (laughs) when, when in the, uh, in the uh, Marion sitting uh, shiver. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the, the way that he um like when when the the fiance arrives and after they've kissed he's he's just constantly rubbing his mouth like trying to get the kiss <laughs> like, like trying uh, to hide it yeah trying to <laughs> hide it and like the dead dad is in the background like just laying there as they're like having this exchange and it's so funny and awkward and there's, tom cruise just a... plays it really really nicely though there's a lot more subtle humor in this movie yes. than I remembered yeah. in my 20s. I think, you know, I can appreciate the humor a lot more for sure. Well, and do you mind if we go back to the fight scene? Yeah. The, yeah. The, yeah. the, yes, the Bill please. and Alice fight scene. Um, I That scene to me is, is, is very well done because at first it does seem like she's high and upset and that he's the one who's being very reasonable and rational. And I guess this is where I started to recognize my own life a little bit, you know, every once in a while, just just sitting there thinking nothing's going on, you know, everything's fine. And then only, you know, after a few words are said, realizing that something is on my wife's mind, (laughs) you know, she wants to talk about something that I have not been paying attention to. And 
that she's been upset about for a while. I don't want to, but now I have, you know, all, all of that felt so real. And, you know, it goes into such a dark, strange place that, you know, eventually you realize that he's saying the things that he thinks will defuse the situation. He's saying he's trying to be rational and reasonable. You know, no, I, 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 I trust you because we're married. You know, I don't think you would ever do that. Um, but it's just not true. She's actually the one who is being um, awake there for a little bit. And it's it to me is is a it was really where I started to fall in love with the movie. I mean, I was enjoying the first scenes and and all that was going on at the party, but this is where I thought, wow, this this is genuine and strange, and I I just love how this stuff that he's saying is the stuff he's supposed to say. It's the it's the faithful stuff, but it is failing to acknowledge these other impulses and his wife's own agency and secrets you know the life yeah. she lives inside of her yeah. head when he's not there you know he thinks she's home which he's shown most of the rest of the way he thinks she's home taking care of their children or their child and their house and that's it you yeah. know one yeah. thing i one thing i really like about that scene is that it doesn't like the, the their argument doesn't make a lot of sense at first you know he, what he says and then what she responds to getting upset they're not really the same thing and it's clear that what she is reading into him his what he's saying is uh what's going on beneath the surface and is not directly related he didn't say something stupid like you know and by the way your mom's fat and ugly like he you know all he (laughs) says to her is like that he like because she's the one that brings up the idea that this guy wanted to sleep with her and so all he says to her is that's understandable because you're very attractive which is sounds like a compliment yeah and is one yeah. and 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 is really just playing off of what she said so he's just going along with it at this point and then she gets upset at him and then starts and but her what she's upset about is so what you're saying is that every man wants only wants to talk to me because they want to sleep with me which is totally you know what she said basically she's the one that said that that and rather than point that out he tries to sort of play it off he goes in the the completely wrong direction which is like every man wants that all they want is sex which is just an open door for for getting thrown back in your face um and that that's that's I mean, I've never had a a fight like that before, but that's pretty much how fights work. They're usually not about what, uh, you know, I mean, obviously sometimes you have a fight where you, you know, did something stupid or said something stupid, but quite often it's about something that is much more troubling in the situation or in the relationship that uh, is, that comes up almost inadvertently. Um, because you are unable to talk about the things that you really want to talk about. And so it ends up being about some silly, stupid thing that neither one of you really cares about. They, neither one of them really cares that she danced with this guy or that he was flirting with these girls. It's about something much deeper than that, which they eventually get to. Uh, but you know, you don't, you wouldn't act, you wouldn't expect them to have gotten there from the initial misunderstanding or yeah or conversation 
it's her feelings of being taken for granted that, you know, because it's that line where we've already talked about. She's set up as this person of beauty that we look at. And when Bill finally says, oh, that's because you're beautiful. Like, that's just like the, you know, putting out the fire with gasoline. He's he's making it worse because that's something that's been building in her for a while. And then when he takes away her agency and all women's agency by saying that they don't have those feelings like men do, which is a, you know, a dumb headed way of going about it. Instead of reacting, you hurt and it's just a kind of a defensive mechanism. And she decides to do that to bill by saying, Oh, I would have left you, the kids all to sleep with this guy. And that is the, you know, that is the thing that kind of sets Bill off. It both wakes him up, which is, you know, eyes wide shut. The, you know, we can talk about that towards the end. But um, it opens his eyes to the fact that women have agency and pe- everyone's a sexual being. It's not just men. And then it kind of, then he gets his call to adventure with that phone call saying that his uh, patient is dead. And he's left with this conversation unfinished with this information hanging in the air between them. And he turns that information into this just increasingly, uh, just increasingly sexual fantasy in his head of how his wife has cheated on him, even though she has not done anything of that sort. And it plays throughout the film. Every time you think Bill is finally going to kind of step back a bit, he replays this fantasy in his head, which usually gets increase it gets increasingly yeah. more erotic and more uh, more explicit as he thinks about it more and more, and that usually fuels him forward to some sort of you know. I've heard people say that this is just about a guy who spends a whole movie trying to get laid, and <clears throat> I don't think he sets out right away to try to have sex because obviously he would have done it with the very first person who offers it to him. And then you as you said, he's walking down the street and the thing I find the most fascinating, which goes into our uncanny discussion about the world of this film, right before he's accosted by the Yaleys and his masculinity put into question. Uh, we have that bizarre walking process shot where the a city a city street has been filmed, and Tom Cruise is obviously walking against a yeah, he's projection. On a treadmill. Yeah, yeah, which it's the only shot like this in the whole movie. There's plenty of other shots of him walking, but this shot happens right after the fun- right after the woman admits that she loves him, and basically just is trying to turn her feelings of helplessness and death into something else, which is sex, which, you know, is a good way to distract from horrible life issues, which is the problem that people have been using sex for for way too long. Um, But she's trying to use sex as a means of dealing, coping, uh, fear for her new life, fear for her move, fear for her father's death, fear of mortality. And she wants to just have sex with Bill in a way to kind of just maybe feel something different for a couple minutes and after that moment he's outside we have that weird process shot which i always take as the symbol of that's when bill enters this new world 
because everything is weird and strange and he's moving forward. Um, and that's when he enters this bizarre dream world of him uh, understanding that uh, sexual dynamic, sexual power, and dealing with all these things in a more eyes open manner. I'm going to keep on using eyes open uh, because that is the theme um, when I discuss things, I guess. So uh, did you guys get that, or what did you think of the that process shot? It stands out in such an oddball way. I just wanted to know what everyone else thought about it. Well, I think the, the walking scenes in the film are always kind of the oddest and, and obviously the there's rear projection in the in the taxi as well as you know when he's going to um to to see his his dead patient um that's the first like dream or or imagining of of what nicole kidman is doing which by the way they um kubrick shot with kidman alone and refused uh, and told her that she was not allowed to tell tom cruise anything about what happened in those uh in those sex scenes despite the fact that Ooh. they went on for like a couple weeks um he was not allowed on set or or to hear anything <laughs> about how they were filmed Jeez. Uh, oh that must have drove him crazy <laughs> well he he also developed an ulcer making this movie um he, and he's no he's notorious for being controlling of the movies he's on yeah so to give up control to kubrick like that must have been really oh he really gave up control here he was not allowed to see the dailies so he never saw any of his performance as they were making the film um so you know for months on end he was unable to see how he performed any scene to try to match it or build on it or um, you know, do anything basically. Um, they, I mean, yeah, he, uh, he, he also reportedly shot like 90 something takes of him walking into a doorway. Um, <laughs> and Kubrick never told him why he was, he kept redoing it. He just had him do it over and over again. <laughs> um, so Tom Cruise was really the, um, the Shelley Duvall, uh, character in this movie where Kubrick pretty much terrorized him throughout the shoot um, in order to give him this sense that he just had no idea what the fuck was going on the whole time. <laughs> um, and Cruz ate it up, apparently, though, because he's never had anything bad to say about uh, the film other than that he hated playing the character, but that he felt it was a necessary thing for him to do. And, um, you know, he was glad that he did it. Um but I, yeah, so I think like those walking scenes were kind of this situation where, you know, you're on a treadmill in a studio. Kubrick's probably not giving him a lot of direction. He has no idea what he's supposed to be thinking about or, or doing, or all he knows he's just supposed to be walking on this treadmill. I'm sure it was just weird as hell. And, and like, yeah. and you can see it in his eyes through, throughout. I mean, he's just not really sure what's happening ever and yeah go ahead well i was gonna say that leads me to one of my questions i was going to ask you both and i think now's the time because he looks so unsure and uncertain and not all of this looks deliberate i i haven't quite been able to figure out and maybe this is a good thing um the motivation behind his night of you know searching for this other experience because 
Is it just to get back at his wife for what she said to him? Is it to have those experiences himself? Is he opening up? None of those quite fit. And and mm. I'm not sure what it is. It really yeah. is kind of a dream of of these all these are all things on my mind, but I'm not a deliberate person still. You know, I'm still not going out there and seeking this. It's just happening to me and it's like an assault of of things I never wanted to really acknowledge about myself. And and so I, I just haven't quite been able to work that out, and I'm, I'm I'm glad for that. But I was curious what you both thought, and I I think this ties into those that process shot a little bit. Yeah, and when he goes back in the morning, like, is he going to find out what happened to the woman, or is he trying to get back to something? Does he feel like he was kicked out of this secret place, and he, you know, it's almost like a Shangri La situation where he's just constantly searching for this thing that he almost had or like there's not a lot there's there's a there's a ton of ambiguity around his behavior throughout the film i think yeah i think uh i i always placed it as i didn't see it as kind of like a revenge for getting back at his wife like for this uh imagined slight on his like uh stature or but this idea that uh, it isn't until later in the film um, where it kind of ties into this idea of him trying to ascend his social status to a higher place. Because if you think about it at the party, um, he sees that uh, Stiegler. No, it's not Stiegler. Ziegler. 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 Victor. Victor. The victor. The victorious. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Siegler is uh, with a prostitute. He has He's at a party. He has a beautiful wife. He has the choice of all these wonderful people. And he's having sex with a drug-addled prostitute up in, up in his bathroom. And uh, Bill sees this. And then when he's given the opportunity to also be with a prostitute, I look at it as him trying to dip his toes into mm. the next level of social kind of status or climbing Mm -hmm. because he just comes from that death. He's woken up fully to the idea that women are sexual things. And he kind of has his, like I I do kind of buy a little bit into the theory of he had his masculinity tested a second ago. And then all of a sudden bumps into this prostitute who's very forward, almost as forward as the two girls in the party in which he was, uh, unable to close the deal or even think about the possibility of having sex with those two women. So now he's woken up a bit, a woman is coming on to him and now he has the the idea of like, wait a second. So it's acceptable. It's something I'm expected to do. My wife thinks that that's all we want to do is have sex with everything. Why not just fulfill the role that I'm supposed to be playing here and go and do this. But as you can see, he's completely inept at it. Um, he doesn't know how to how to how yeah. to do the, how to talk do it, about the transaction. <laughs> what do you what do you recommend? <laughs> what do you recommend? And she's just she's and I think that's what endears her to him. Yeah. And she's just kind of like, oh, this is cute. This is his first time. I'll take it nice with him and be nice with him about it. And then you know, once again, his coitus interruptus of yeah. something happens which stops it. You know, well, I guess in a so, way so, that scene is a bit like the opening of Barry Lyndon with the ribbon. You know, where it's it's like this 
I mean, this is like a, a normal societal transaction that happens. It's, it's, it's a, almost like a, uh, a ritual. Uh, and he's completely unable to, you know, fulfill his side of this standard societal interaction uh, that, you know, may be frowned upon, quote unquote, in proper society, but everybody does, but he cannot seem to figure out how it works. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's part of that, uh, that, that ascension into this, uh, masculinity that he want that he thinks he needs to be. And so he takes that step forward and he just doesn't know how to do it. Yeah. And so he does the parroting as usual. <laughs> They're just repeating back lines and, uh, doesn't know fumbles and, and it's a uh, it's a it's comical. Once again, we just had that com- comical scene oh, yeah. of uh, him not knowing what to do with this girl who's like just saying "I love you," and then now he's with a prostitute, which should be a no brainer. Shouldn't be anything he has to think about. It's it's I tell I can say exactly what I want to do, and you fulfill it for me. That's the yeah. The, well, and he didn't even have to seek her out. I mean, she, she's wearing a tiger costume when she approaches yes. him. Like she's literally <laughs> cornering him and pulling her back to her lair. Um, exactly. Yeah. And, and he doesn't have to tr- do anything yeah. and he still is like, you know, and this is where we encounter the introducing sociology book in her bedroom, which uh, like yes. is sitting by the um, <laughs> by the telephone, which is pretty funny. Um, and there's there's uh, I, I sent you guys the, an essay that's titled that that's uh, that's about a lot of these themes that I, I recommend everybody um, uh, look up on online because it's a really great essay talking about the the power and sort of rich life dynamic of the film. Um, which ties into you mentioning Ziegler earlier. And I, I want to talk about him as a character um, because of that power dynamic. Um, he is the, the only main character here that is not in the original novel. And um, mm. that scene in the bathroom has my favorite line in this movie. And I think it's one of the scariest, most disgusting lines in this movie, which is, uh, you gave us a hell of a scare, kiddo. Um, oh, he yeah. he was just uh, having sex with this woman, <laughs> and upstairs in his bathroom, while people were downstairs, and uh, you know now he's standing over her, you know, calling her kiddo, telling her like, you know, and all he's taught, all he's ca- all he cares about is getting her out of his house, making sure this you know nobody finds out about this um he he wouldn't have minded if she had died uh what was scary to him was that she would have died in his bed in his bathroom not that she would have died um and his character to me you know uh the idea of harvey keitel in this role makes no sense to me whatsoever because when you see Harvey Keitel, you're like, oh, that guy probably has sex with prostitutes in his bathroom. Yeah, it's a, he. He brings a a instant menace yeah. to whatever he's doing. He's mm-hmm. not someone that hide can hide very well his masculinity and his yeah. menace. And where... Sidney Pollack to me just oozes power. You know, I mean, oh yeah, and, and this this very comfortable power, not like a powerful you know uh, president or something like that, but just a guy who's like he's got everything and he's able to be 
that that charming dad type figure where he's like i don't just say that to all the girls and oh you like this 25 year old whiskey let me send you a case i'll send it over (laughs) you know and and that like that folksiness is really the insidious nature of the power in this movie that like there is this effortlessness with which they discard humans and make it charming uh, that yeah, I think has it, run through Kubrick's films. Um, yeah, it's it's deep-seated white male privilege power. Yeah. Like, he's never been challenged in any of his <clears throat> power dynamics. He's always been the upper hand, and he always, you know, he doesn't have to know about anything besides that everyone answers to him. Right. Because, I mean, yeah, even he says, you know, talking about that folksiness, it's like, what'd she take? Oh, it was like, Coke and heroin. I don't know. Whatever the kids ball, do maybe. these days. Whatever what the says. kids are doing yeah. these days. Yeah, and that's such a uh, such a horrible way of doing. It. And then uh, going to your essay that you were saying that people should read. There's a there's an implication that the author puts in that essay is like, was he doing this while she was dying? Right before she decided to take the drugs. While she was on the drugs. We don't know. And so that makes it even more disturbing to think about that concept that, you know, it, he doesn't care. He was finishing what he was doing, and then he'll t- tend to her and see if uh, the doctor can help her out. Which, going to your superhero thing you were talking about earlier, Matt, you know, he's considered a superhero by these women. All he did with the first woman was provide her with a handkerchief to clean her eye. Yep. And all he did with this girl is... Hey, wake up. Open your eyes. Don't fall asleep. Oh, and his speech is so comical. Like, he you know do you anything. need rehab, right? You're going to go yeah, get he some rehab. It's just okay, saying what you're supposed great. to say. Work is done. Like, Yeah. He's in an ineffectual in what he... Like, he's... Yeah, ineffectual in what he does. But what he does is considered to be some sort of great heroic yeah. life-saving thing, which she is willing later to give up her life to save him as some sort of payment in which he hasn't done anything. (laughs) He has not done, like if she would have just laid there, she probably like, obviously it wasn't a big enough dose or whatever it is to have killed her then because he did not do anything to alter what has happened to her. So she probably would have just woken up eventually, probably back at her own hotel room after the, the you know Ziegler's men just dragged her out of there, but he did nothing to change or alter the history. But she perceives it as this his heroic nature that has saved her, which she's then willing to risk her life for him later. So I find that to be fascinating that you were talking about that earlier. This uh, Bill as superhero, as this is his profession and his thing that he is, and how he's perceived by women to be this superhero, which I find. To not be the case at all, and it's just yeah. such an interesting well, and obviously dynamic. Obviously, he doesn't care about his patients at all. I mean, he cancels two appointments so that he can drive out to look at a mansion. For, you know, I mean, there's no. <laughs> I think he <laughs> thinks he does, though. I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, oh, totally. I think he thinks yeah. he's helping them. I think he think. I think he believes in the speech that he gives her when she is uh, coming yeah. to. Um, 
that's that's just one of the things I love is that the dialogue is spot on and and Tom Cruise does I think he we'll probably get into this later but I think he does such a great job with the, his performance or or rather Kubrick <laughs> leads him into this he picks all stuff. the right takes yes <laughs> that yeah. it's just you know you see someone who really does I mean Oh, geez, it's it's back to that eyes wide shut kind of thing, you know. He he believes in the life that he's living, and he believes in his speeches. He believes in his role. He believes that he is a hero to these people, um, which is why all this is so unsettling because it it, it takes the scales from the eyes. You know, you have to you have to really kind of self examine and, and and see the the hypocrisy and the the delusions and the myths that you tell yourself and that he's telling himself in order to feel pretty good about this kind of stuff. I mean, he, he feels secure. Um, he, he, I think he thinks he can get to, to Ziegler's level someday. Um, but, but you know, or at least he thinks, he yeah, I think that's right. I don't think he ever, he ever could. And he wouldn't be able to either. Cause he's not quite that cutthroat. I mean, Ziegler shows that he gets to where he is and maintains that, because of many things that he is willing to do and his eyes aren't as shut as as Bill's are and yeah. i think a lot in a lot of ways that he's he's most upset in the pool scene that he has to show Tom Cruise how much more powerful he is than him that yeah. like that it's yeah. that it's not immediately apparent to him that they live in different worlds is the thing that offends him the most about that interaction you know yeah that he has to bother putting him in his place because he should know his place exactly and he keeps saying you know let's cut the shit you know let's let's you know let's be honest here you know he just keeps saying like you know uh, i'm gonna you know tell i'm gonna give you the straight dope (laughs) you know he never does but he he keeps trying to uh peel off the layers in order to make it clear to tom cruise that he is way out of his league, as he says. Um, but he never actually wants to do that because so much of the privilege of being that powerful is not having to assert your power in those situations, that it just sort of happens. Of being able and, to maintain yeah. the the image that you are a beneficent, yeah. good, powerful man. Right. You don't Similar want to, to dip Tom down Cruise like that. And Nicole Kidman on a you know on a on a more personal level that he shouldn't that he doesn't feel the need to assert his power in their relationship that it's just taken for 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 granted um and then you know when she tries to take at least a little bit of that back by saying i could i could leave you at any time if i wanted to um you know that's that's really when he starts to wonder like well what am i supposed to do in this situation yeah which which uh as we're watching bill's odyssey through the night uh, we we perceive because we the audience are are not well at least I'm not in the ultra one percent super uber rich. Um, we're watching Bill wield his power, which is his wallet, uh, throughout the yeah. whole entire Odyssey. Here's money. He literally tears a hundred dollar bill in half. In yeah, the, 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 he, here's my medical ID card, which will tell you that I'm a doctor, so I'm important. And he does that, and then we realize after that that how gauche like his his uh trying to show that he's powerful 
how that is just ridiculous in the face of right. true power, which is that party and the way that the the people there and the way that later Ziegler in his speech, like, dude, you have no clue. Like, you just don't like you think you're you think your eyes have been opened. You you have not like <laughs> they're just they're still closed. You have no clue how much power we have and you're never going to get here and you're never going to be this way. Which, you know, is uh, is very interesting because we're watching him try to gain this power or try to, um, you know, the power that was stripped away from him by his wife, which, uh, you know, Trevor was just saying that idea that it was taken away from him. And now he's trying to uh, wrestle it back somehow. And he, you know, he realizes he'll never attain that power. And I think that they both go through you know, Bill goes through a physical journey to under, come to understanding that he doesn't like to know his place in things and to come to an understanding about his relationship with his wife, where I find it super interesting and very and fascinating that uh, Nicole Kidman's uh, Alice's journey to this under same understanding is through dreams. Yeah. She doesn't have to go through a physical journey. So it's almost as Kubrick is saying, like, uh, a women a woman's journey is an emotional, introspective journey to come to understanding, while a men's journey has to be a physical journey of, like, failure to be able to finally understand, like, what it is that they set out, what questions needed to be answered. And I thought that was – I thought that was a really – wonderful kind of piece of uh, craftsmanship in this film, the way he did that. And I think because people are so focused on Bill's journey and the sexual nature of Bill's journey that went, that they kind of don't really kind of get that. uh, They both have come to the same conclusion in the, in the morning, uh, but through different ways. Well, we, I, yeah, I like that a lot. We see, we see his journey, right? We don't, we, we, yeah. she's, she only recounts her journey. I mean, I think, you know, the fact that I think in a way that it's a bit old fashioned, uh, that division, you know, and that, that was present mm-hmm. in the, in the book. Um, but I think, uh, and so I think in a way it's like her journey is the domestic one, you know, she's staying in the house. She doesn't, yeah. really do anything through through the middle of this movie um other than um groom her daughter to be just like her uh, oh, and yeah. one of the points i really uh was terrifying in that um in that essay that uh that's online is the um the the fact that the math problem that they're doing is figuring out which boy has more money yeah <laughs> Um, it's pretty, uh, so, I mean that, that whole section, and I went back and watched that section after reading the essay, you know, it's really just them getting her getting ready in the morning. There's nothing really other than them wrapping the present that goes on after, uh, after that. So it's really just, you know, Nicole Kidman puts on a bra, she's putting on deodorant while her daughter brushes her teeth. Um, you know, it, it's a very, um, it's very much like preparing for your you're preparing your appearance for the day um so uh yeah i think that that aspect of it is really uh is really interesting and then when um when she told the the dream this is one of my most vivid experiences in a movie theater because 
uh, you know, there's that it's a very large movie theater. The Chinese there's there's probably a couple thousand seats in it. When uh, when that dream finished and there's a slow there's that slow fade out to the next scene, I I've never heard a more intense audience reaction to something that was not like a jump scare or a, or like a there's something about Mary hilarious outrageous comedy moment. There was this just collective sigh of relief and distress and confusion and just like disgust and it was uh there there's that that scene is so intense the way that she describes what what happened and it's so much more uh aggressively erotic than the orgy that tom cruise Mm -hmm. had just experienced that it's like you're you're just uh kind of left in shock a bit and much more jarring to me than her pretty typical to me like desire to have sex with this naval officer like this is a moment that is just like you know no dream is ever just a dream and it's a pretty intense thing and here she was just laughing hysterically you know and just like in the shining she wakes up and says she had this horrible dream you know jack woke up and said he had this terrible dream where he killed them and proceeds to try to do just that like this is uh this is a very intense moment in the film and i think ultimately like the big turning point like i almost feel like what does she really even care what happened to him when she's had this experience and and you know is is reckoning with 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 her yeah. her dream that she experienced and that's the turn into the second act like that that's the 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 midpoint and then we now we begin our second part of this film um but yeah i guess we we kind of brushed over uh, a couple of quick, uh, a couple of things in his journey. The orgy. Um, <laughs> well, the orgy and the, uh, I think the more, and one of the other fascinating ones is the, uh, the costume shop. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Nick Nightingale. Yes. <laughs> yeah. He goes like after, after his experience with the prostitute gets interrupted by his wife's phone call. He, uh, he goes to, he happens to be next to the, the jazz bar that Nick Nightingale's playing at the Sonata and the Sonata. Yeah. And he, uh, learns the information about, uh, the sex party. Um, it's not, it's not called that and it's very hush hush. And, uh, but this is where I see bill using his power. Yeah. Uh, he's the doctor. Nick is a failed doctor. He quit. And now he's just a jazz man playing with his hands and uh, bill, keeps pushing him until he gets what he wants which is the address and the password to get into this uh this high echelon upper crazy party um and that's that's where i see bill like finally making the effort to take control of what he wants to do like one of the things he does and that's uh which i find to be that's one of his big character moves is to kind of say, no, I want to go to this and I'm going to force, I'm going to push you to give me what I want, which is his step into that world. And he wants to go into that world, which I think is, you know, builds that theory that it's bill trying to move forward into the next social strata that he wants to uh, operate in, which is Ziegler's kind of strata. 
and and Nightingale is played by uh, Todd Field, who uh, went on to direct um, In the Bedroom and and Little Children, and um, I think he's really great in this role. I also want to point out this is completely uh, a non sequitur, but I read uh, his Wikipedia entry, and this is just amazing. He <laughs> he was uh, in on a like a minor league baseball team in Oregon, and he and his friend in there in his kitchen cooked up the first batch of big league chew bubblegum what todd <laughs> what? field helped create big league chew yes <laughs> <laughs> wow so there you go that's your little fact when was that? that that feels uh, like it's so much pro- longer ago big league chew yeah came it in. probably would have been in like the 80s or early 90s i would assume i don't know but his friend went <laughs> on to sell big league chew for like 800 million dollars <laughs> jeez <laughs> I bet when they run into uh, each other at parties, you know, yes, it's a, yeah, exactly. a little bit of that awkward camaraderie that we see here. Yeah. He's like, oh, no, I at the par- I just filmed the party. I don't uh... <laughs> No, But um, I, yeah, so I think he he's he's uh, he's really solid in, in the film. Um, but yeah, I think the you know, uh, and like, is that a real adage, by the way? Once a doctor, always a doctor. What is that? Doesn't even make I, sense. <laughs> I don't know. I, I I find their their relationship uh, really interesting because it's such a relationship of familiarity, but we didn't know each other that well. Mm-hmm. So it's that like because their conversations are totally re- like uninteresting and uninspired. Yeah, they're super broy. Stare at each other. Laugh don't know what to say awkward um hey man so and then blah, ha, ha, they punch each other a bit <laughs> you know it's super it's super broy and they don't they don't have any connection and it's only because there's no one else at that party that Tom Cruise knows at the beginning that he even kind of makes that connection and then he just happens to be there at Nick Nightingale's place because of where he was with the prostitute yeah that he stumbles into this and so it's yeah it's 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 weird and then their conversation it's such a mundane how many kids do you have two oh i have one how long have you been married this long oh where are you living here and then i'm going to a sex yeah, party it's like, <laughs> and then it's like brah this party brah you gotta well, see that's it. what it is it's like it's Tom Cruise, like, he's like, Tom Cruise has the better life, so I'm going to, like, tell him about the cool things I do. I want to show off. Yeah. And then it ends up biting him in the ass because he takes advantage of him for that reason. It's a great, all of that is also just one of those really nice moments where you see the stupid pleasantries that we say to one another. Uh, that looks like so many of the conversations I have other than the end of it when I run into friends from college. Yeah, you don't get invited to crazy sex parties. It hasn't happened yet. Um, But I thought, isn't it just like you throw a rock and hit a sex party in Utah? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, actually, apparently, there's more of that going on than I knew about. (laughs) But anyway, that's another story. Um, No, it it really does. It felt so perfect again. It, It feels awkward. It's it's wonderful to see how confident Stanley Kubrick can be that he will make it look like the acting is bad in order to show how genuine the the moment is. You know, he he thinks that far in advance that he's like, I'm going to make this look stilted and awkward and as if Tom Cruise and this guy, you know, are just doing a, a little bit of a line reading. 
And it's perfect because it really does feel like when I run into friends from college that I wasn't really close to and that I never kept in touch with. But you feel that need to like reestablish, not because you want to, but because it's what's expected. You know, it's polite. It's the thing that you're supposed to you're supposed to show that interest in someone else that at one time social contract. Yep. And. They, they do it so well, and I think that once a doctor, always a doctor, is just a, a one pleasantry too far. Like, it's it's an attempt to to show that you're not judging someone that's incredibly judgy. <laughs> like, you're yeah. trying to make oh, them yeah. feel super, good. Super it's passive aggressive. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, super passive aggressive. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so, so then they go to the, uh, to the rainbow. So then he goes to the rainbow room, which, of course, like pairs up with the end of the rainbow where the models were pulling him um yeah and uh this i don't know how i feel about the asian businessmen (laughs) i yeah so i'm just kind of kind of skirt over that but a little on the nose in terms of what someone would think it'd be who's the most sexually adventurous people the asians let's put them in this weird situation well i think it's all i think it's like a uh uh play on the like masculinity of like the uber serious like asian businessmen that like all they want to do is dress up as women and um and put makeup on um yeah but uh but i think uh you know more importantly the uh well first of all like the the guy who owns the the costume shop is amazing i forget his name uh the actor but um the, uh, he's a great character actor yeah he's in so many i awesome love when roles. he asks like you know about the balding and he's like yeah, and and tom cruise is like i'm really late and he's like yeah 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 i i want to get back to bed too you know <laughs> yeah that's it yeah yeah he totally turns it like hey can you help me with this i'm helping you well i can't help you with this oh fine i don't want your help anyway i yeah just, just <laughs> stop taking up my time <laughs> Because once again, Bill uses he's he's a gate is barring his way from doing the thing he wants to do, and he uses his money and his medical card yeah. to get to gain entrance into a, an establishment he needs to get into, and uh, yeah, it's super. I, I love that one. It's tense. It's really bizarre. Um, it's filled with mannequins, colored lights everywhere, yeah. um, and you know he's saying what he needs to get into this party, and so this guy is though the final step into uh, keeping him from being able to attend this, uh, you know, this next level of, uh, of, uh, you know, his journey. And uh, it's, yeah, here's a noise, but it's so, it's that weirdness again. Did you hear that noise? Yeah. Do you think he like, do you think that what we're experiencing is really what happened in terms of, he wasn't aware at all of what his daughter was doing. And then in the next, then the next day he's like totally down with it. Or do you think that was a bit of play acting in the beginning? I think that was play acting. I think that's how he lures other men to sleep with his daughter for money. Yeah. I, I think that was part of the whole thing. I, I agree and see it that way too, but I think a part of me can can sense the weird dream logic of accepting yeah. it and saying, "Oh, this is where mm-hmm. this is where we got." And look at we can actually make a little bit more money on the side here. I'm going to to go with it. And the the wow. disorientation that that would cause to Bill the next day, you know, it works on I think both of those levels where it, you know uh, we can have it both ways where it can be something that he's hiding but knows about, um, but also you know hey 
let's just do this. Everyone's just doing this, you know, tonight. <laughs> Tonight's sort of a special night. People are branching out. and um, Tonight's the night. Yep, yeah. moving on to the new, <laughs> and, new and things. I think, and I think this uh, this girl, the played by Lili Sobieski, I think this uh, has direct relation and correlation with his own daughter um, later as he looks at her because uh, that's one of the things we haven't talked about yet, but it's kind of the ongoing theme of this blue light, Yeah, which I, through watch, you know, I'm watching this, at first I thought blue light is kind of like, uh, I was thinking the blue light is used in terms of when it's wanting to uh, talk about or think about sexual desire, but after watching that a second time, I think the blue light represents secrets because anytime a character is either backlit by blue light, bathed in blue light, or edged in blue light, there is secret information being shared. Um, Some sort of secret, uh, either I have a secret, I'm telling you a secret, or I'm sharing something with you that is some sort of secret or lie. And so I think that moment where... He, they're all bathed in blue light. They're both exchanging information. Bill's not telling him what he really needs this this costume for. Uh, Millich is not telling him really what kind of his business is. And then the girl, when she comes out, she like uses Bill as a protective shield from her dad. But her dad isn't making any threatening gestures towards her. He's she is yeah. playing the role, and then whispers a secret in Bill's ear. Gives him the most ridiculously sexy come hither look to him, but then, but like, it's that moment of like, she's you can take her as childish until she gives Bill this look, and then you can see that she has full control over what she's doing, which is just bizarre and hard to kind of wrap your head around. And then the transaction happens and he moves on. And uh, that's when there's no more blue light. Um, when he goes to that party, red is the dominant color of that party. And it's very, it's it's really cool what he's doing in terms of his color use in the cinematography. Um, the blue light, which I think represents secrets. Pink light, which represents female agency. Every time he goes into a place where there is some sort of pink light, it's uh, sexual... It's a pre- either prefacing or um, surrounding a moment of female uh, sexuality. So when he enters Domino's apartment, it's bathed in pink light from the Christmas tree. When he goes to the house of the dead, the dead uh, patient, the Christmas tree light in the room is pink, and he enters that room, and then she confesses her love for him. When she he goes to, there's one other moment where there's a a pink light in the room when a woman is kind of being forward to him, and then later in the movie, um, there's a pink Christmas tree in his uh, in his office, and that's when he decides he wants to revisit all these pink Christmas tree moments he's had the day before, um, and then when he gets home that night. He shuts off the pink Christmas tree mm. at his house when he realizes that that all those doors are closed to him. That isn't the life he wants to lead, and it's a 
I I found that to be really really strong in this movie. Kubrick's always had a a good handle on visuals, but this color theory thing that uh, he really it's super strong in this film, and I I really appreciate it. I liked it a lot. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, there's there's a, there's a lot of use of color in The Shining as well, but a lot of his yes. other films kind of uh, don't necessarily depend on that as much. Uh, I guess 2001 no. a little bit. Um, all right, well, so uh, we got pretty meta here in the sense that we um, we delayed uh, satisfaction of discussing the orgy until <laughs> deep into this. Uh, similar to Kubrick, all of our all of our opening reviews are going to complain that. Um, that we we haven't been uh, sexual er, erotic enough uh, for the in, oh, in this conversation. That, uh, that's such a weird uh, <laughs> criticism by by serious film critics to levy at a film that it didn't deliver on the pornography that they were hoping it would have. Yeah. Which is how is that something that you can uh, you know criticize? This wasn't as dirty as I wanted it to. Well, be. there's a real perception I think of. Um, and again, we're delaying the orgy here, but um, <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> of of like what um, discussion of sexuality is supposed to be, and the you know the idea of being post sexual revolution and that sexual freedom means one thing that is not necessarily what it means. Um, you know, it's kind of similar to, in a sense, to a, a certain subset of people who consider themselves feminist in in the way that feminists that that women are supposed to be as or supposed to treat sex in the same way that um that men do and that that's equality that like the attitude towards sex needs to come from both uh genders that somehow like sexual aggression from females is asserting their sexuality when in reality um, you know, the, the power dynamic needs to be eliminated or completely altered to reflect more the desires and interests of both parties. Um, there was going into this, a feeling of like, this movie is supposed to be like all fucking all the time. And that's the only way that you can really talk about sex in a modern way. And so I'm cool by saying like man i've been to way way better orgies than that like the, somehow that's like film criticism <laughs> became a thing well and that's masculine posturing again definitely you know this isn't the thing i wanted it to be so i'm going to talk about all the cool sex i've had to show you or this isn't the thing that it's supposed to be you know that mm-hmm. like that like orgies are supposed to be fun and wild and crazy and like it's it sort of misses the point entirely of what he he's not trying to present something for titillation like that uh, it's hard for me to imagine how you could watch two people having sex uh while one of them is sitting on a person in all black who's on their hands and knees uh pretending essentially to be a table and uh, with with a group of older rich people standing around watching them it's hard for me to imagine looking at that and saying that it was done wrong because people because the people who are making the movie don't understand what orgies really are like 
there's mm-hmm. the, the, like the, the, it's so clear that that was not the intention of the of that scene uh that like i i i i i'm at a loss to like explain how that could have been the the perception of the people that that initially watched this movie well it's not like they come into it thinking oh here's kubrick he's always been really sexy you know <laughs> his yeah. going back First off, a lot of his movies don't even have any kind of sex scene in them. You know, they, they, they barely have women. Yeah, yeah, they might have some crass yeah. moments where, you know, in Full Metal Jacket, for example, talking with the prostitutes or in Low, or not, well, Lily, yes, but um, Dr. Strangelove with uh, the, the, the women in, in the bedroom. Yeah. Um, but. You know, the only time he's really done another sex scene was a Clockwork Orange. And you can't look at yeah. that and think, well, that was titillating. You know, he's always been, um, he, he he's always showing these things and then subverting them. He's never just doing it to titillate or to, to satisfy. That's just not who he is. Never been who he's been with this stuff. He, he's, I don't want to say cynical, but he, he's, he strips this, this, sexuality down to these power dynamics that are very unsightly and hard to take and it's not like he was going to do it differently in this movie that's kind of about that very thing and so it's weird that the expectation was oh Kubrick's making an erotic thriller you know and they think they were going to get something like Brian De Palma or something you know it's just it it's yeah. not well, this was work. kind of at the tail end of like the the core erotic thriller era for film. I right? guess that's like, true. Bas- I hadn't thought start, about that. Started with Basic Instinct or Fatal Attraction, really, and then you know the, this was this was at a time when the the you know the internet the pornography internet pornography industry was, had no had not yet sort of kickstarted, and so people uh, there was still a huge market for softcore porn out there. And so the, the, there were a lot of movies like this being made, whether it's, you know, the color of night or sliver or whatever, uh, movie, uh, um, James Spader was in that year, uh, <laughs> or Sharon <laughs> they, Stone, you know, yeah. Or Sharon Stone. Yeah. Um, Douglas. who somehow never made a movie together, but, um, the, uh, you know, that, so I think there was kind of this expectation that like movies for adults are sexy and there's a lot of fucking in them. And, like the, the so i think that that aspect of it was a perception that the society it, this was going to reflect the marketplace as opposed to reflect kubrick's previous films and the fact that he had nicole kidman and tom cruise in it two beautiful people who were married in real life you know i think people thought they were just going to see tom cruise and nicole kidman having sex at an orgy well i actually um, thought I know I've read things about that expectation that that's why he cast them was so that he could be completely liberated to just show it, you know, just do what he yeah, he was yeah. going to do. That's one of the reasons that I never watched the film when it came out because I didn't care, you know. I I it wasn't I I I had the different expectations too, just based on what people were saying. You know, the expectations that were out there that, you know, this is the chance for Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman to really get out there. And you know, you've all been wanting to see this. This is the couple of the of the decade, um, and here's Kubrick to come along and give it to us. Yeah. Well, and the like on top of that, couple that with the fear and the hype about uh, 
them having to digitally insert people to censor how graphic right. this right. sex scene is. <laughs> and like and then going to see that and just like being like, geez, this is not anything at all. Like this isn't and you know, the people that were going there to be titillated, of course you're gonna be disappointed. Uh, because that's not at all what this film is about. It's not it's a, it is what what you were just saying, Trevor. It's a power dynamic. These people have gathered at this place to completely just wield their power in a ritualistic manner. Like they're not there to in like it's not even enjoyable things. Like no one is having like enjoyable sex. Everything is mechanical and for the for other people to just be able to say, see I'm rich and powerful, and this is what this is what this world is to me. It's not something about enjoying; it's something about keeping the upper hand of the power. Or, structure. in other words, because you're a star, they let you do it. Exactly. Yeah, because you're a big name, you can just grab them wherever you want. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, I think um, you know, in terms of the power dynamic, I think. Uh, this is a good time to talk about the the treatment of women in this film and sort of how it relates mm. to Kubrick. And I'll, I'll, I'll start with the question. Um, and I'll let, I'll let Travis answer first. So Trevor can think about it. Cause we've been thinking about this for <laughs> a year now, but um, yeah. my question uh, that I, that I put in our outline, I'll just ask you, Travis, do, do you think that this movie forgives or confirms Kubrick's, previous preoccupation with the nature of men in his films um i'll preface by saying that this is the first of all of his films with the exception of a bit of the shining in which kubrick has given voice and agency and desires and wants to a female character so for that, that is a huge step forward. Um, but I think this, uh, I think in this movie, I think he does address those criticisms that have been leveled at him about how he, like, you know, that idea that he's a misogynist or he doesn't like women or he doesn't care about women. I think he, I don't know. It's hard because I don't think he is... I don't think he uses this as a as a means to to confirm his feelings about women, but he does point the finger and say, "Well, you think I'm bad? Look at how these powerful people uh, treat the opposite sex, or basically treat anyone they consider inferior, but mainly women." Um, so it's hard. Like with everything with him, it's it's. It's more complex. It's not cut and dry because as much as it's like I said, I said to someone recently about something where someone was talking about David Lynch and how there's always this violence towards women that makes must make right. David Lynch a person who's violent towards women in his thoughts or actions. But really, I think it's once again, it's Kubrick showing us a world in which this is what happens and it's our world. So does that reflect upon him as the person that is doing this to the opposite sex? Or is this 
yeah him holding a mirror up to society and in this case this is a big holding a mirror up to society moment because if we go back and start looking at his life there's no indication that he was a super predator that he used his power to take advantage of women on set um he uh, you know there's none of these uh these moments that you can attribute to these things yes he got divorced and he had two wives or three wives he had issues just like with anyone else who is struggling to discover themselves but there's never like tales of him like you know uh you know barry linden yeah i like, don't think now that, that i yeah, have I, power yeah. I'm, I, I don't think necessarily even even um if if you look at his movies as fundamentally misogynistic that it's it needs to necessarily be tied to his own actions and his life um yeah i'm glad you brought up david lynch though because i do think that the um you know the, that there is a real question of you know there's really violence against women is a real thing that happens in our culture and in around the world and it's one of the biggest problems in our world and it's important to talk about it and address it but do you by um putting some of the images and storylines out there that david lynch has put out there are are you perpetuating that perception of women as victims or are you uh trying to undercut it or explore it in a deeper way that gets people to fully understand what's happening um and i will say that i have a lot of problems with some of david lynch david lynch's films but i don't think that there's anything in kubrick's catalog that compares to twin peaks fire walk with me in terms of Mm -hmm. compassion and uh empathy and most importantly um viewing the experience of uh being um abused or um have having violence uh, committed towards you um from the perspective of the of uh, a female um the in in Kubrick's catalog so yeah i think from that perspective david lynch uh kind of tops him in a certain way but um, I don't know, Trevor. What do you, what do you think of of what we're talking about? Do you do you see this in his other work, and and how how do you think uh, Eyes Wide Shut fits into that? So, going back to your conversation you guys had on The Shining and about Shirley Duvall's character, as I was listening to that, and Aaron, when you know your guest that day, he brought it up too, and saying. You know, she's actually being portrayed as someone who's been abused and put through this time and time again to where she really doesn't have any kind of agency. You know, that really has been stripped from her, not necessarily because of the, the film or disinterest, but because that's what we might expect for, of someone in that situation. And, and right. in this, but, but at the same time, it doesn't necessarily feel like Kubrick is examining that other than just portraying it. And I think it's a good portrayal. But in this particular film, in Eyes Wide Shut, I think he acknowledges that and explores it in in a more constructive way. It isn't just a portrayal of women who are acted upon time and time again by men. It is that. It has that. But 
in particular in the fight scene again at the very beginning, you know, Nicole Kidman's character, Alice, comes across at first as just trying to cherry pick things and, and deliberately misunderstand Bill's um, attempts to ra- rationalize and reason with her. You know, she wants to fight and she's going to do it. Here we are. Here's the emotional woman. But she's vindicated in in this film and, and, and in that very fight by being someone who is talking about what's going on under the surface in in a way and shows herself to be um, that that character who who has a will. Now Kubrick seems to kind of revert and then show her as someone who doesn't. And at the end, she's the one who says the one you know just an interesting line of well, we should be grateful, you know, about this experience and about their their protection about their place in society that's granted to them by people, you know, and that they're being allowed to go on. So she is kind of subverted there, but I think he does a better job of, of having those issues out and looking at them from that perspective. And, you know, I guess who knows? I mean, it's, it's always weird to, to have no woman on the, you know, to, to be here to tell us how it really is. Um, but, I think he does a better job in this film because it act, you know he is exploring masculinity but in particular how it does relate and destroy uh, the women in, in in our lives if we if we hold to these attitudes and and push and push and push you know I I think he's doing it in a better way here than he ever has done before um he's dealt with things violence against women before you know in uh, clockwork orange in particular that's just such a hard film for me lolita is is uh, you know dealing with pedophilia you know he's dealt with this stuff before but it always feels like he's less interested in the effects on women's lives um right in this one it feels a bit different to me but again i'm pretty fresh to the film um so i'm not not sure but it it felt more open and yeah. and feeling yeah. toward that empathetic and and constructive yeah i think it it this this film really does uh it's it's sad that this is his final film because one of the things that you know we've been saying the whole thing is he just has no concern for women like these are movies he's making about men and men's stories and women are secondary to these ideas he wants to view because they're not things he's concerned himself with. And I think this movie, he finally concerns himself with a woman and it's fantastic. And because of that, it's, I would love to have seen what he does next. If he does like move forward and start like making an effort to be more understanding or concerned with the lives of women. Cause this is a, this is a huge, a huge leap forward from every other portrayal of a woman in all of his other films. Yeah. And like, like we said, like at first it was like, Oh, maybe he's misogynistic. Maybe he doesn't care, but I think it's just like, it was never a concern for him. And now that something has come up that he was able to embrace and be concerned about and tell a story that really does have a strong female person in it that has agency, has desires, has an arc is complicated um, you know, Matt talking about the dream sequence that she has in which after uh, Bill returns from the party and she goes on to describe like this really complicated, 
hard to listen to just dream about her embrace of his humiliation and how she enjoyed laughing at him but also was just like uh, taken in with all of this sexual energy and just being passed around and being completely free but at the same time mocking her husband for not being able to participate in this this thing this this life this energy this you know this world that she is you know could be substitute for society or for life or for the bigger culture or just you know whatever you want to put it in a placeholder for what this dream symbolizes um i think it's fantastic that he was able to do that and i really miss that opportunity to see him grow further into this culture of um being more concerned about uh where women are in our society and how they had didn't have did not have a voice in his films prior to this and uh so yeah i don't know if it wipes out or corrects everything he's done but it is definitely a fantastic step in the right direction for a filmmaker who reveled in exploring the um really messed up and complicated and uh, flawed lives of men to be able to take that energy and that idea to do it into the incredibly messed up and flawed complicated lives of women would have just been a fascinating uh, experience yeah I agree I also think um, you know Nicole Kidman is kind of the protagonist of the movie she has much more of an arc than tom cruise's character does he doesn't mm-hmm. really change that much and you know uh, regardless of whether you look at the final line as a um as a positive resolution of the conflict within their marriage or as a more cynical or negative idea of um putting on a new mask to uh cover up the um, previous insecurities I think she obviously has grown in in one way or another you know even in just the idea that he says forever and she says no let's not say forever that she is able to uh, still you know hold up hold out that possibility of the naval officer <laughs> um, I, I think she's a little bit subverted though um, by the we should be grateful line I I read that as possibly meaning that, you know, she is recognizing their place and recognizing the games and grateful yeah. that they can continue on with them. Because yeah, it's what's yeah, going to keep I, I them in this society. Point. It's what's going yeah. to keep them comfortable. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like the line that uh, the Hungarian says at the beginning, isn't marriage wonderful because it allows us to right. fully participate in deceptions. And... It makes like both you could, parties. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 and that's and and so, I guess uh, with her ending line, like I could, I, the first time I watched it, I think I, you know, the very first time I was I was confused by the ending. I didn't understand, and I kind of was like, "What's going?" Like that. It was a very baffling as a young twenty something, and now in the forties, you know, I look, I can definitely look at it in a more, you know. You know, she says we're grateful. We should be grateful that this is something. This is an experience we've been through together and came out on the other side. Um, and then that whole arc of like, yeah, let's not say forever. We're beyond that now. 
we know that childhood sweetheart uh, fairy tale romantic love is not something that is attainable. So this idea of let's be together forever, right. which is like almost a platitude at that point, um, is something that is unrealistic. And then to drive the point home, she doesn't say let's go home and make love. She says let's fuck. Like this, we're we're beyond this romantic notion. Like what we've been through and what we've seen and what we've understood together is is beyond that. And now it's like let's talk about what we really need to do and want to do. Let's like I, I see some some articles I've read see it as a putting on of new masks of new roles of their lives. Yeah. But I, I do see it as a we don't have to sugarcoat some things. We can be very honest about this stuff now. Like there might be other things they're going to mask and hide because that's the nature of, uh, you know, humanity just kind of never being able to be fully open and free for fear that of being hurt. Um, but for this kind of aspect of sex, she can now be a little more free yeah. in her desires of wanting to be able to express this is what I want. And which is something Bill could never do throughout his whole journey. Yeah. Well, and she, she, I think it's the the fact that she can express her desires that is most important. Because regardless of whether you think that she's doing it because she wants to cover something up or because she now is able to to be fully attracted to her husband or she's had the uh, the kindles of marriage, uh, you know, refired. Um, I think the fact that she's the one that is making that decision is, is, is valuable. And you know, the, the movie is still fundamentally about men and the power that they wield and the things that are done to women, you know, and, and half the women who have speaking lines in it are prostitutes. So, I mean, it's not, mm -hmm. we're not, we're not talking about, um, a, uh, an eye opening, um, feminist treatise here. But I think no. <laughs> there there is definitely something to to be said for the fact that this movie so thematically fits with the rest of his films, um, you know, even movies like Paths of Glory um, that feature virtually no women. Um, I don't actually don't think there's a single. Oh, except for the, the at the end, One. yeah, um, his wife, <laughs> uh, right? Exactly. Um, so I, I think that sort of highlights the fact that these these issues that he's talking about, yes, they're not directly related to women, but I think they concern women in the sense of, you know, that women are are half of the population, and the other half is men, and men, uh, you know, and that relationship uh, is important. Um, to women's lives and to the way that they are um, they are seen and perceived um, and and I, I also think it's interesting that that Frederick Raphael who who co-wrote the screenplay one of his big uh, screenplay credits was for uh, a John Schlesinger movie called Darling which um, I, I do recommend it's a it's a very pretty movie um, but it, it's it's really all about um, it's basically about like a, a, a aspiring model and her um, relationships with men and how she's just seen as this darling character, um, this superficial person. In reality, she has much more depth to her uh, character. And I think that that was a big part of what he was trying to capture. It may have been more a more interesting or more challenging film 
uh, had he actually um, picked a woman to co-write the film uh, with him. Mm. Um, but I think that was definitely what he was going for, was that perception of how women are seen by men um, that that is also um, how he begins and ends the film. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're pretty deep into it here. Is there any, anything else that you guys, we didn't even talk about the music in this movie, which is super awesome. Oh, the music's fantastic. Yeah. It drew, it drew, it drew me right in <laughs> as I, as I began the film and, and heard the music, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to enjoy this. And I love the piano cue. Um, you know, the way he uses it is so impactful. Um, and you know delays its appearance and then really just um, picks and chooses the moments when when he's going to use that um, and it's a it's a really creepy and instantly kind of iconic uh, cue um, just that that you know dun dun oh yeah dun. that that in the uh like a liturgy type uh yeah the uh, backwards dark oh the backward liturgy dark music for the uh I mean, we still haven't talked about the orgy. <laughs> We're just skirting around it like a circle of uh, of cloaked figures watching something happening in between. It's weirdly one but of yeah, the that... least interesting parts of the movie. I feel like, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the creepiest. It, like, it's the creepiest centerpiece, yeah. and it's interesting. But it like it doesn't. It's done well. It doesn't the music do the thing. Is great, it's but yeah. yeah. Oh, and we didn't even mention that Leon the... Vitali is the guy in the uh, in the red robe. Uh, the that, crimson that robe with the golden yeah. mask. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think I, I I find that part to be, you know, the orgy is interesting because it is such a cloaked and mysterious thing, which is a perfect uh, a perfect visual uh, representation mm. of the society that Bill will never be a part of, and then he gets ejected from it. Right, and I, I just found that to be to be great because then that you know then the dream sequence the dream talk happens and we go into the second half of the film which is a mirror a reverse mirror of the journey he took the night before so he goes to the place yeah and it's the first time bill's actually driving himself so he's actually being someone who is uh, taking the initiative oh, for yeah. the first time to do something as opposed to being driven everywhere throughout the whole movie so he drives himself to the mansion. He goes back to the uh, the rainbow room to be find out that everyone's cool with the, him pimping out the daughter and being offered it. He can't find Nick. He then is actually kind of flirted with by a gay man, which uh, is the same time where he would have been chastised for being gay in the first part. And the whole second half of the movie takes place in the day where the whole first half of the movie takes place at mm. night. So we have the in the in the bright. It's just fa it's fantastic the structure of this film. Yeah, I like your point on cloaked and mysterious as well because like the thing that they ask him to do is take off his mask and remove his clothes. That like he's he's not allowed to be cloaked and mysterious. He, yeah. he's got to be bare in front of the people of power. Exactly, and then he visits the morgue to find the girl in the same laid out, but now she's dead. So she's you know her her arc is almost dead. Uh, giving herself up to be dead to protect Bill, and then she's dead at the end, where he finally sees her for who she truly is. So all of her and almost kisses her masks, <laughs> yeah, and all of her masks come off. You know, finally we see who, that she's a person. 
like before it's the sex drug sex addict or sex drug addict then we have her being this symbol of sexuality followed by a person that is no longer with us and he didn't get to know her didn't get to bother to know her but she saved his life then that's what makes Sigler's comments about oh nothing changed for her it's like every night everyone fucked her brains out which you know she would have died anyway eventually and it was that level of power which uh, I think Tom Cruise is confronted with after seeing her dead seeing that she sacrificed herself for him and Sigler not having a care in the world about this dead prostitute uh, makes him realize he doesn't want to be in that society, which leads yeah. to the breakdown to his wife. It's just, it's really well done. I, yeah, I can't talk enough about how high this has moved up in my rankings on the film scale, which I guess we but, should do that, uh, right? Really? Talk to, or really Trevor, quickly, like just, I, I still feel like I read the ending a little bit more cynically than, than you do. Because they, you know, it's Christmas throughout this film, and that's, you know, been brought up a little bit. But I I think that's fairly significant with the, you know, as they're raising their daughter. And the final scene takes place in this really nice-looking toy shop where basically she's going around and selecting everything that she wants. It feels to me like they're going to just adopt their old ways and continue to raise their daughter in the same way. You know, they may have some honesty between them, but the world, the way they interact with the world is going to be still the same. They, they've recognized their place and they're going to, they're grateful for it, as she kind of says. I, I know that we can take all of this so many different ways and that's part of the beauty of it, but I think that they recognize what they have and are going to just go with it. And, you know, the, the I, I might feel differently if it happened in their bedroom or, you know, if they were having dinner together. But the, if the ending happens in a toy shop at Christmas time yeah. with a, a daughter yeah. who's running around getting everything. In, and, and that's how they're that's how they're parenting her at this point is. Well, yeah. I think you're right that, the, you know, that <clears throat> uh, especially because the cyclical nature of the ending that you're talking about you know matches so well with the cyclical nature of the endings of his previous movies just the idea that these things are have happened and they're going to happen again yeah um, will always happen yeah, yeah yeah is is definitely in line with what you're talking about but i don't necessarily think that they have to be um, mutually exclusive because i think she can still Agreed. Yeah. sort of realize something but recognize that this is the life that they have chosen and, you know, maybe this will happen again. Maybe they will have some sort of resentment towards each other. I mean, not maybe, definitely. Um, that is to a certain degree, the nature of a relationship. Um, but there, and, and it will, it's just a degree, a question of degree, right? How strongly you feel that and how, um, well you can be honest with each other and, and talk about it and move beyond it. Um, that's still a question for them, but I think that, yeah, ultimately like this is the nature of the beast and they have to, yeah. to relate to that if they agree to go to keep moving forward in their life, in their lives. And the, and I think the, the power dynamic between the two of them has shifted by the end of this movie as well. Yeah, He's very much like, what should we do to her right. as opposed to leading the way 
in their world because this is a world he's unfamiliar with and so now she has a bit more of the uh the realistic um hand in the in the relationship which could probably steer the ship to a maybe a more enlightened or better uh you know dynamic between them so uh trevor we we normally rank these things obviously you've only seen this uh you you are new to this film so i'm not going to ask you to to put it precisely anywhere but i was curious as to if you had a particular favorite if you're still a 2001 barry linden kind of guy or if you um if you've you've put that anywhere uh if you put anything else above that since then or if anything um uh, and and where kind of eyes wide shut generally resides in your in your uh groupings yeah so i i am still a barry linden 2001 kind of guy with barry linden at the top right now but that's probably only because i saw it last you know when the yeah. when the criterion disc came out if i watched 2001 it might you know those two just kind of swap um then my number three and i think pretty firmly there is the shining and some of that's just personal attachment to it some of it's because i i, I do think it's just an absolutely brilliant film um <clears throat> This is where things might swap around a little bit. I currently have Dr. Strangelove as number four, and I, sl- I, I slid Eyes Wide Shut into number five above Paths of Glory and then The Killing. And I can see Eyes Wide Shut taking over the number four slot from Dr. Strangelove. And that surprises me, uh, but I, I can see that happening someday down the line. You know, and and it it takes a while in my rankings before I get to movies that I don't like, like number twelve, you know, with or, yeah. or don't don't care about as much. Um, you know, Full Metal Jacket's one of the only movies that really made me cry, like devastated cry in a film. You know, not just tearing up, but mm. kind of crying. That has I don't know if any other movie's ever done that to me. You know, Doctor Strange Love is hilarious and makes me laugh every time that I watch it. The Shining is still terrifying to this day. And Barry Lyndon and two thousand one just bring out that sense of awe in the filming and in the themes and just you know, just in love with those movies. And so I'm very I'm very curious how all this will shake out as I get more experience with Eyes Wide Shut because I, I think that it it could keep moving up a little bit, but right now that's where it is. What do you think, Travis? All right. This is it, huh? For all this the is marbles, it. Right? There's no more rankings. Oh man. So this is the, the one that's etched in stone. Yes. This is the, and you're one never that, allowed uh, to change throughout your whole life. You're coming down <laughs> from Mount Sinai with the tablets and this is it, yeah, right? This is, this it. is uh, the final. All right, here we go. I kind of I did some shuffling. I went through and really thought about it because this is the you know the one. So um, my rankings as of now, Fear and Desire is still my lowest ranked of all of his films. Lolita, like I said, I still it's a subject matter thing for me. I have I have a hard time finding the humor. I know a lot of people appreciate the dark humor and understand the the flaws in the character, but I still. It's one of those things. It's a hurdle that I have to get over, or maybe I just don't want to ever get over that hurdle. Um, Killer's Kiss comes in next, followed by Spartacus, going up the ladder to Full Metal Jacket, then A Clockwork Orange, The Killing, Doctor Strangelove, Paths of Glory moved down a spot. The Shining moves up a spot. The more and more I think about that movie after that podcast we had, the more and more it, it, it just enamors itself to me. Um, 
Eyes Wide Shut comes in right above The Shining now. Uh, Barry Lyndon, 2001, still holds my top spot. But like I said, you know, this list, all these lists are always fluid. There's nothing ever set in stone. The more I engage with any film, those the more I uh, uh, develop a new relationship with it, the more it, it'll change and move around. Matt, where does Eyes Wide Shut fall from? All right, so I have kind of, I would say probably like... Uh, four tiers of Kubrick. So I'll, I'll run down the tiers real quick. Uh, so the bottom tier is Spartacus and Fear and Desire. They're just two movies that I don't really feel very strongly about. Um, yep. <clears throat> the next tier is uh, a big one. It's Full Metal. It goes Lolita in, in ascending order. Lolita, Killer's Kiss, Clockwork Orange, Full Metal Jacket. All films that there's some things I like about it, some things I don't doesn't really do it for me but still kind of interesting then there's just like the really solid films uh and those would be the killing dr strangelove and the shining those are movies that i think are are really solid uh shining definitely is is i think a step up from uh, shine uh, from dr strangelove and the killing but still just not top tier kubrick just really good films then there's the top four, and the, they kind of shuffle around, although Barry Lyndon is definitely still far and away my number one. But right now, I am I was not planning on this going into this podcast, but realizing just how much I like this movie and how much there is to, to talk about, I'm going to go Paths of Glory, Eyes Wide Shut, 2001, Barry Lyndon. So wow. I think this film is not perfect which I think Paths of Glory is pretty close to being perfect. But there's just so much here, and it's so interesting to me, and I love talking about it and getting into it. And, um, yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot to be said here, and I think this is one of those movies that if somebody told me it was their favorite Kubrick and they loved it and they think it's one of the best movies ever made, I'd be like, you go, girl. Because that, oh, yeah. that makes total sense to me. And I'm not surprised that he told his uh, family and friends that he felt that this was his masterpiece, because I do think more than any other movie, including Paths of Glory and Barry Lyndon, this is the crystallization of his worldview and of the things that he wanted to address in his films and the things that he hoped he would illuminate in order to uh, have them changed. And unfortunately... Everybody just wanted to see some boobs, and they didn't listen to him. And so here we are in 2018, and we've got a lot of problems. Yeah. <laughs> so I hope more people think... see this movie and think about it. I don't. Unfortunately, I think it's going to get in front of the wrong people. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, it'll just continue to, uh, you know, it's like uh, when you look at people and talk to them about their Kubrick lists generally this movie isn't anywhere near it or on it and i think if anyone was to ask me what kubrick movie should i watch i think this is the one i would suggest now because i think it's the one that is should be mo like you know barry linden is getting the the revival it deserves yeah. and everyone is talking about it and i think this is the other one i think this is a film that if warner brothers was going to part ways with the rights to oh, it. I, hope I so. think a criterion of this would be 
would would give it the same praise and critical response as Barry Lyndon is getting with its yeah. new release. I think this this is as important as his other films, and I think it should be uh, lauded and applauded. And I think a lot of people should be uh, paying attention to it more. Amen. Um, so yeah, I agree. Well, Trevor, thank you for uh, bearing with us through our orgy delay. And, um, <laughs> so thank you. It was it, it has all been great. Yeah, it was a real pleasure to have you on uh, to talk uh, about this. And um, this is it. This is the last yeah, one. Thanks. So you were the you are our thanks final for, guest. Hey, it's been a, it's an honor. I appreciate you you thinking of me and reaching out because it. it I, I've in, admired the podcast and your views on things. They've been instructive and just to partake in and to participate a little bit here. It, it's, it's really has been a great morning for me. So thanks so much. So Travis, uh, we are going to do a, before we move on to an, another director and change the, the focus of this uh, podcast, we are going to do uh, a bonus episode. Uh, that's going to be, a summation of uh, what we've seen and uh, how we feel about it. And then uh, we will also cover a number of uh, documentaries and films, uh, both made and unmade, um, about Kubrick's life and career. And um, maybe we'll touch on some books and uh, maybe maybe we'll we can write some haikus. What do you think? What else? What else should we do? I think. I think that's a uh, that's a great idea. I think some uh, some poetry is in order. Maybe like a, um, a freestyle rap battle. I think uh, yeah, that would be good. And I think uh, I think limericks more than anything is what Kubrick would appreciate. There once was a man from the Bronx. <laughs> um, well, I guess I would say with that we're complete. But I think I'll stay with we're complete for another week. <laughs>